Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the finale of season one of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, a television show on Disney+. Plus. It's a big deal. It's a huge moment. And they took some swings with this one. And we are very excited to talk about them. Stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Woohoo! Welcome back, everybody, to our discussion episode on the season finale of season one of Percy Jackson and the Olympians on Disney+. Plus. Carter and I are very happy to be in the, the virtual studio today, joined by two brand new guests, friends of the podcast, but first time guests here. We have Alexis Sanchez here, founder of Latinx Geeks. Hi! Hello. Uh, very, very excited to be here and be talking about Percy Jackson after being an 18-year fan. <laughs> and while we're getting to know everybody, how do you feel about Luke Luke uh, in the books? <laughs> uh, give, us, give us a primer. <laughs> Luke in the books is just this, like, grumpy, entitled white guy that just, like, wants to, like, control everything and make everything in, like, his own image. And how do you feel about Luke in the series? Precious, just baby boy, just really wants to be loved and hugged. <laughs> this is what happens when they give us, like, not a white guy. We are also joined today by Marissa Tandon from You Are What You Love podcast, as well as many other podcasts. So true. So many. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Marissa. How would you say you feel about Luke in the books? Luke in the books? Man, you never wanted to punch someone's teeth in more, have you? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. How do you feel about Luke right now on Wednesday, January 31st, 2024? On Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, a mere four hours after I completed the finale of Percy Jackson on Disney+. Plus. I would still like to punch his teeth in, I think. I know that you're not supposed to say that about children, <laughs> but it is how I feel. <laughs> I'm really glad that we have varying perspectives because it's important to keep us in check. Uh, <laughs> before we dive into talking about all of the big swings that Carter mentioned, we're going to thank our patrons. So we have some new patrons to thank. Skylar, Lorelai, Anam Loves Sam, Samantha, David, Kaylee, and as always, our sustaining patrons, Dayton, Justin, and Nathan. Thank you for helping to support our podcast. It's been so awesome. We had those watch parties like every week for the last seven weeks, and then we had a big one the other night on YouTube, and that was really fun. And just thank you. Our, our Patreon community has really grown into this like really sweet completely sickening book club of really smart people and i love it join us on patreon if you would like patreon.com slash seaweed brain all right carter tell us a bit about the big swings there are a few huge adaptation changes that they made from the books in this episode in particular the probably most substantial of these is the way that we do luke's betrayal scene where, first of all, it's a sword fight. It is a discussion. It is a recruitment. And also, on top of all of those things, Annabeth is also present the entire time. These are huge changes, and this is going to impact the rest of the series so greatly, because this is, in a lot of ways, the core dynamic, right? It is this wrestling with Luke as a figure looming over Percy and Annabeth and Grover and 
everyone else. He, he, he's the face of Kronos that we actually care about, can understand, has like human perspectives and ideas that we can graft onto and imagine as a potential counterfactual for ourselves and for the characters. The way that we've reimagined this relationship is very juicy, delightful. I'm really living for it. I'm really excited for the way that I think this switch from the whole, I'm going to try to kill you with a scorpion to the whole, I'm trying to recruit you. You're my friend and none of this was meant to betray you is really a switch that is turning Luke into even more of an anti-hero than he was in the books. Because obviously in the books, like he is pretty irredeemable in our eyes. That was the conclusion that we came to after we finished the last Olympian. But there is such potential to make him even more sympathetic in the series. And I think that we are setting up that potential chef's kiss brilliantly here because in order for us to feel like this is a compelling hopefully five seasons of tv we want to see percy and luke playing off of each other like the fact that we're going to be able to see so much more of luke's journey in the next fingers crossed four seasons means that we can like jump back and forth between the two of them and really make it feel like they are two sides of the same coin and not just like percy is the hero who we're following this whole time like i think we're going to get to see so much more of luke's journey (laughs) and like what's going on in the princess andromeda and like all of that creating that relationship dynamic to be more of a two sides of the same coin than ever mirrors, before. Foils. Yes. Oh, For them to be mirrors and foils as opposed to protagonist antagonist, which I'm not saying it's not like that in the book. We've said many times they're two sides of the same coin, whatever. But playing that dynamic up just makes for even more compelling television because we yes. want to focus on the relationship between these two characters. And the more similar they are, the more tension there's going to be between them making different choices. And we've we've been winding up to this all season, right? Like when we talk when we think about episode 6 and the huge change of including Hermes, dramaturgically if you're looking at the arc of this entire story, the main reason why you do that is if you are interested in fleshing out Luke as a character who has a backstory and a perspective that you really are curious about having a lot of detail and texture to, right? All throughout this episode, we're going to be pointing out these other moments that are going to, both in terms of the writing and in terms of the directorial choices, really establish this relationship where Luke is a full, realized person with a lot of complexities, but also a lot of paths in for the reader, the viewer, to latch onto and find empathy for, but also like literal mirroring is something that we're going to see a lot of in this episode. We're going to see shots that will track from Luke continuously to Percy that are basically symmetrical. It's very exciting. All the pieces are falling into place now. Like the reason you would include Hermes, similarly, the reason you would include Hephaestus in this season is because we are trying to get a glimpse into all the different parenting styles and all the different perspectives of the different Olympians so that we know and understand this whole thing to be a weird, complicated, toxic family dynamic that as we Mm -hmm. know at the end of this episode is one that is built off of fearing Zeus. And that is very Trials of Apollo core for Rick to really build that in here and be like, who is our true enemy? Obviously, shout out Daphne, blame Zeus. Maybe it's not even Kronos. Maybe it's Zeus. (laughs) It's always Zeus causing the problems and just being an awful not human in general. Oh, but so hard to blame Lance, (sighs) though. Oh, um, this performance was so good. It's it so so we'll talk about it in grave detail as well. Yeah. What a talented, talented man. All right. Should we go into <laughs> the first incredible mirror of this episode? Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. We last ended episode seven. Aries on one end of Montauk Beach. The trio on the other end. We're gearing up for the fight. Swords are drawn. 
excited. We are presumably ready to dive into the fight. But is that how we open? No. We open on a black screen with a voiceover from Luke. <laughs> and the voiceover begins, look, you didn't ask to be a half-blood, but you are one. That makes you part of something bigger than yourself, which is good because you clearly can't handle this on your own. Listeners, should you be aware of the Lightning Thief musical, the choice to recreate the opening lines of the book and the series here through Luke's voice does exactly the job of what the good kid reprise in the middle of the last day of summer does at the very end of the Lightning Thief musical. <laughs> I've listened to it exactly once when it came out. And now I'm like, I need to go back and just re-enjoy that <laughs> all over again. Yes. The, the, there are so many levels of resonance that are co-occurring here. There is literally the the like brain itch of, okay, th these are words that we've heard before. That's nice. We're bookending the season with like the same words, slightly varied. But if we think about the fact that like, <laughs> this means like we are setting up this parallel. We're set setting up mirrors between Luke and Percy ideologically. We are also saying that like when Percy delivers that framing device to the viewer, listener, reader monologue at the beginning of the series, he is quoting Luke. Like what he is saying there are words that we now have canonically like delivered from Luke to him, which is incredibly significant for the way that we interpret the story, for the way that we think about that relationship, and for the way that we think about the different ideological threats. Like, we see Luke as, like, a huge influence on the way that Percy is thinking through this inclusion, which is so important. And, and it's going to prime us for this fight so well. <laughs> I don't, this is a little bit of a Chalice of the Gods spoiler. Percy <laughs> says that he is typing up this story, like, on a word processor in the Chalice of the Gods, which implies that he, like, wrote on a Google Doc, basically, the entirety <laughs> of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. And to think that he's decided to sit down one day and start this story by quoting Luke. Having him do that quote, having Percy repeat that, having... Luke introduced himself by telling Percy that he's no longer alone. That is such a core element to Luke that you are not alone. I'm here for mm -hmm. you. I'm like your guide. You're not mm -hmm. alone. We're all a huge family. And that's all he wants. Like yes. to just have mm -hmm. this family to not be alone. And he and for like mm -hmm. a kid mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. Percy who's been like alone and isolated and feels so out of it, to have this guy, this older brother figure to be like, I'm here for you now is like so so important to me like oh you're oh. an orphan of course I'm an orphan god I wish there was a war where we could show everyone we're worth more than anyone bargained for <laughs> I will say as your resident Luke hater <laughs> in a, a queer in, group of Luke in, apologists you better chime in <laughs> that this was to me I was like bubbling with how good it is like it's such a smart move to do this but this line that obviously is like completely mirroring the first line that you have from Percy in the series and also the first line you have of Percy ever in the history of Percy Jackson existing in the book The Lightning Thief like it draws you in as an 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 year old when you're reading these books that make you feel like okay we're talking directly to me and this might be why I feel so out of place mm -hmm. the change of this to this honestly like attempt it is a recruitment we now know that this speech comes from percy being approached to as we find out at the end like this is not you're alone and i want to give you a family and make things good for you which is what percy's version of it is when you're a reader or you're a viewer this is i know you're alone 
aren't you upset that you're alone and don't you want to take revenge for the people who did this to you? Mm -hmm. It's like playing on that loneliness in the worst possible way. And obviously Luke is having that loneliness played on him by Mm -hmm. another force that is dark, but it does give you this completely opposing sides. And I think it allows you to see how much more honestly sinister it is. Mm -hmm. It is this like feeling of saying, okay, don't you hate this feeling? Don't you hate being alone? Don't you hate what the gods have done to you? Shouldn't we take up arms and cause chaos? Right. Oh, I just saw a glimpse into the future where every time Luke does anything bad, I'm going to blame Kronos for the next 10 years. <laughs> Uh-oh. I literally, as you were saying that, I was like, yeah, because like in my brain, I was like, what would happen if Luke was like feeling all of these things and then Kronos didn't come to him? You know, mm. would he have come up with a less violent way of going about um, everything he wanted to go about? Would he have reached such a point of depression where like, I don't know, he would have dropped out of the demigod world altogether? Am I going to blame Kronos for every violent thing Luke does from now on? Oh, no. See, what (laughs) Camp really needs is just a real good therapist like that, you know. It's time for me to share that meme of the really skinny book and the really big book where it's like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, like Percy Jackson, (laughs) the Olympians, if Luke had gone to therapy. And then it's also Seaweed Brain podcast of Carter and Erica went to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I go to therapy now and our episodes are got longer. So what does that say? Yeah, it was not robust causal inference to begin with. (laughs) Uh, the other thing the scene does is set us up for the fight to know how Percy knows how to call for a single combat. Yes. So sure. like, what, what we have is we have this voiceover, black screen, and then the shots that we got previously of, you know, the trio, Ares, the beach, everything. And then like on top of that, we have this like priming us into like a sort of hard cut into the forest of Camp Half-Blood where we're doing the actual training scene. When we were watching episode two, I was like, "Where, where's the training montage? I really need to see the training montage between Luke and Percy, where Percy's learning how to sword fight. Where did it go? Well, it's here. We have that. We have this priming for, like, what a sword fight looks like. We see Percy's growth. We introduce a lot of, like, this background lore about, like, not just how does he know how to fight, but, like, why does he know how to fight? Like, what? <laughs> because he, like, as they're doing this fighting training, Percy's basically asking Luke, like, why am I doing this? It doesn't make sense. No monster is going to attack me with a sword. And Luke basically is like, well. Percy says, the point is they don't fight fair. It's not like there are rules. And Luke says, of course there are rules. See, that's what warfare is. Knowing the rules so you can use them against your opponent. Which then tees, of course, into Percy saying that he wants single combat against Ares with predefined stakes. But also, like, sets up everything else. I'm going to make multiple Star Wars allusions in this episode, which is not really not something that I saw for myself previously. But this is something that I they talk about. I love it when s- Carter comes out as being somebody who actually knows so much about Star Wars. It's my favorite secret <laughs> Carter trait. Secret lore. It was, it was um, you know, they had, like, reference books at the uh, Julia Ng Learning Center uh, of the elementary school that that um, I went to that were, like, this thick. It was, like, a coffee table book about Star Wars and all the lore yeah. that, like, exists in George Lucas's head but isn't in the movies. You could feel, like, truly like years of television with all the things that this man has invented but has just chosen to be like a weird backstory about someone you'll see flash behind screen for two seconds but the point I'm trying to make with this is that it's like a similar (laughs) this is like something that occurs in a lot of like speculative fiction where where you have like monster fighting in some way (laughs) like the Jedi and Star Wars at the beginning of the like prequels are people who like really should not be learning sword fighting because the only people who know how to sword fight 
are other Jedi. <laughs> like, like a lot of Jedi do follow this and it's they get like slaughtered because they are not prepared for enemies that also operate swords. But then you also like have this other sinister layer that's like some of them do know how to do it and why? Like what is like what do they know and like why what does it reveal about the order of the world that you are seeing, that you are preparing yourself, that you are creating? as, like, a powerful organization training quote-unquote heroes that, like, you are preparing people to fight against people who are like them, who, like, have the same training as you and, in theory, should be from the same order, side. Fighting your own family. Mm. It's fighting your own family. That's exactly what it is. It's a skill that, like, Percy is right. Like, he shouldn't have to develop, but he does. And he develops it from Luke. <laughs> it's just very good priming. This is a great episode to talk about Star Wars because we just dropped Charlie an episode today where talks Charlie about says Anakin Skywalker. Anakin Skywalker. Yes. Yeah, I saw that clip and I was like, it's so <laughs> accurate. It's so good. He has his own Palpatine. <laughs> also, this is just such a gripe with like TV currently. This made me really want one more episode that should have come earlier of getting to see this training, of getting to see the relationship with Luke and Percy settling into camp before he goes on the quest the mm -hmm. way we get in the book. Because we get this flash of it here and it, it's asking you to go, OK, I accept that he learned all this information, but I wish I had gotten it as a like, you know, sort of Chekhov's gun. Like I should have mm. seen this three episodes ago or five episodes ago towards the beginning and had that moment of why would he ever need to prepare to sword fight and then mm. have the payoff of it later. But that's not necessarily the creative team's fault. That's just by nature of yeah. we don't do 10 episodes anymore. We don't we do, do 10 episodes we, I mean, anymore. We could have fit something into the montage of episode two where they do mm. have a little bit of a sword fighting sequence. It's like different types of priming that you want, right? Like if, yeah. if the question is like, why would you need to sword fight? And that's the kind of question that you're trying to foreground, then like, I think it would make more sense to put it further upstream. Yeah. Whereas if you're trying to yeah. like, just bring Luke back to the forefront and like weave that character into all of the like increasing tension and drama that you're doing in this episode, then I think that this choice is more optimized for that, that second set of objectives. I do yeah. feel like if this yeah. were in 2018, it's not just that we have 10 episodes. I think specifically one of those 10 episodes is going to be a Luke bottle episode from his perspective yes. like exactly. if yeah. were, I was gonna say we're missing the bottle yeah. episode TV yeah. golden yes. age then we would yeah. have done the perspective switch oh, yes. I wanted the bottle episode so bad uh, we, it's not too late listen Sea of Monsters one of the eight can yeah. be on board the princess Andromeda with Luke sailing and it's like to Miami quiet. wait comedy. I can literally see it It's good. that's it he's like at his desk it opens with him on the princess Andromeda like writing out like contracts with Ugh. the triumvirate and he's just like Ugh. and he's like it's so quiet because he's actually more lonely than ever as he's like going about all of his duties trying to run the ship walking around getting into a fight and then it ends with him lonely like alone on the ship you know that's why we need 25 episodes of TV back <laughs> like entire Truly. season 25 episodes we get the filler episodes just random i miss it i love how much like this like us discussing percy jackson season one not just us but like everyone in general has brought to the forefront like extreme gripes about the current state of television it's been so like it's like people are like having wars about like like realizing like where we are with television and yeah, how like yeah. we're never gonna get back to where yeah. we were 10 I, years ago i want my filler episodes from some <laughs> random kid's perspective that just sees like Percy walking and who's like, why is this kid getting so much attention while he's just doing his daily chores? You know, like, I, yes. I, I need the nonsense. Agreed. I would have even taken 10. I'll take 10. If Disney's listening, season two, just 10. It's it, all I'm saying support. if it were 2018, <laughs> it would have been 10 episodes and we would have done the like Rami, like master of none print yeah. of like one of them is just world building 
art film um following yeah. random people um stream yeah. of consciousness and then one of them is luke you know yeah. <laughs> but Absolutely. conditional on it being 2023 you know 2024 we did what we had to do i just want to <laughs> shout out as far as structurally Truly. with the whole percy uh luke b plot sword training i know that this is something that has to do with black sails and the way that black sails is structured and i want to shout out monster donut because if you want to know more about that you should go there and one <laughs> eventually when Carter and I do our Black Sails rewatch now that Percy is over we can come back and revisit this and talk about the parallels but go talk to Phoebe about that she I knows would everything. like to uh, be on you know anything that has to do with Black Sails because Captain Flint how the world Wait. makes you a monster like it's you're not you're not born a monster the world makes you a monster is <laughs> so important to me that's also so Luke like oh. Alexis can you tell us about the parallels then <laughs> it's not enough time Okay. That's fair. That's fine. Fair. Another day. Real. Okay, so we've explained why the scene makes sense here. The scene itself is good. The shooting choices, the stunt performances that these people give is phenomenal. We've seen the scene a while ago and we've been having all these conversations with like Charlie and with the stunt team where everyone has been talking about this moment. <laughs> and we've had to just like talk to each other about it, which has been lovely, but also like we've been waiting to talk to to, to the world <laughs> about about what happened here and the, the work that went into this. There, there's so much good physical acting that you get in the characterization of Luke and Percy's dynamic in this moment where like Luke is like moving Percy around with a sword somehow. It is incredible the amount that you can get Luke being cool, back foot, calm, collected, not putting in energy, you know, like real mind's eye is somewhere else as he is also training Percy and you see Percy like flying around in ways that are almost like impossible to, to physically imagine. Like that's not how sword fights normally work, you know, like you can't push somebody that far normally with a sword when your sword is touching somebody else but you see walker flying here in ways that are beautiful and are also are like giving us these little tastes of the like visual language that we're gonna get in the aries fight scene um where walker really will just like fly fly Be picked up helicoptered and slammed down on the ground <laughs> can i be a sword geek please for a be a sword geek I loved in both this scene and the Aries scene, the size of the swords difference. Exactly. Like when we're yes. talking about the size of like what Luke is holding, Riptide feels tiny mm. now. Like you're like, you may as well be fighting with a ballpoint pen. It is such a different amount of like strength. And I think I loved watching the actual opposing of their fighting styles and the ability of like where their strength comes yes. from. Because you look at Walker and he's being, I mean, Percy Walker, same. I've been same doing person. that constantly. <laughs> <laughs> he's just so good. It's like, it's, it's truly uh, one in the same mouth. Yeah. Yeah, but so you look at you look at how small Walker is and how small Riptide feels mm -hmm. in in this moment, and you look at how large Luke's sword, which is closer to a broadsword yeah. at this point. One of the things that I love about talking about swords and like the way fighting styles work, when you talk about a broadsword, oftentimes it's actually a hindrance if you don't have the amount of strength and body right. to be able to handle it. It's, it's too big. big. It's too mm -hmm. heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love this is probably like digging into it more than is necessary, but I love the fact that you see Percy able to take something that was given to him of this world that is light and allows him to move mm -hmm. and allows him to make choices and be able to 
adapt to those choices. Yes. And you see Luke working with a sword and a weapon from this world that is actively weighing him down. Yes. That is actively <laughs> slowing him down. And I think it's, I just think it was such a good choice because there's not, like we said, this is a change. There's not a requirement for this weapon. Riptide is like very much in our in our heads of what it looks like. But to choose to give Luke something that physically weighs him down as his ability to escape and also his his thing that's anchoring him to this world. I just think it's such a smart First choice. of all, I want to hug you right now. That is the best <laughs> thing anyone's ever said. I'm obsessed with that. Second of all, I would agree that like, I mean, we know it was a scythe, but I think it looks mm. thicker and heavier and darker than I ever imagined it in my yeah. head. Carter, you yeah. made a note about Luke's scar makeup looking extra deep. And we don't know if that's true or not, or if the it's the lighting. <laughs> I could absolutely see them being like, we want to make it extra deep. But what Literally, I really it can noticed, be highlighter or something, you know, like it pops. What I really noticed in the scene, in the darkness with the shadows, it's like the sun is setting. And then also later in like the actual darkness with the fireworks is that it yeah. looks like a teardrop. Mm-hmm. Oh, I yes. will be honest, watching it in my living room, I could barely see. It was so dark. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you, but turn on the lights. It's too dark. Real. <laughs> Fair. Anyway, the transition shot from Luke and Percy into Percy and Ares is brilliant. Yes. And I could watch that on loop all day. This is one of our first mirrors. Like we have some in the actual sword fighting scene where like the first sword crossing is like a shot from below where the two of them are like, you know, symmetrical. But then this final scene where like Luke is has a sword fully outstretched pointing at Percy telling him to like get back up. We're going to keep going. We follow the camera tracking from Luke's face down the end of the sword. And then we hard cut Percy, tip of the sword, down it, into Percy's face. Oh, <laughs> it's one of those things that like feels thoughtful, feels inevitable. But also like if you're watching it really quickly, you won't necessarily like register it individually. You'll just feel the sense of connection and parallelism and grounding from scene to scene that is so rich and important for continuing to have like strong emotional motivations and like character journeys in fights and not having, you know, a sword touching another sword, and that's the end of the story, you know? Yeah. Could I have used 20 more minutes of the Ares fight? Yeah, duh. But I think it makes sense. Like, <laughs> I would rather see <laughs> Percy and Luke fighting than 20 yeah. minutes of Ares and Percy fighting. And again, like we were talking about with the sword, Percy is so tiny, his sword is so tiny, it makes mm -hmm. sense that he really just comes in with his kill shot big wave as soon as he yeah. possibly can. Because yeah. he's not going to beat six foot four Adam Copeland and four yeah. foot long sword in a sword fight, you know? Yeah. He's got to bring his water powers to the table. Yeah, he's got to do it before he gets tired. Because if not, getting tossed around like that and just getting exhausted, then yeah, it's not happening. <laughs> and it just looks so good. It they looks so really good. work together so well. We, we watched the documentary as a part of our watch party from the finale last night. It was an impromptu decision. And I believe the link for that watch party is still on the internet if you want to yeah, you have watch it that experience. It's in our show notes. But something that they mentioned in the documentary that I did not notice in either or like in any of the previous times I've seen this episode is that there's supposed to be part of this fight choreography where Ares is like locked swords with Percy. Percy's on the ground or like on the sand specifically. And Ares pushes the sword and like through that pushes Percy along the sand and like moves his body across the beat, like scoots him through. It got a little bit lost in the edit, but I was really looking out for that because they made a big point of talking about that yeah. in the documentary. There's a great note in our outline here about shouting out Storik Strandberg, Stu, because the script coordinators were doing their work with continuity because Annabeth has no idea what's going on in the scene. When Percy says Kronos, Annabeth is like, whoa, <laughs> hold up. Grabs Grover's <laughs> arm and it's like, um, what? 
<laughs> I just imagine them like switching notes like well this is what was happening while I was here and this was happening while I was here meanwhile yeah. like Percy's just getting tossed around and they're just like comparing <laughs> notes exactly aside from everything looking so stunningly beautiful um, and the fight just looking so good there's a great line here from Ares where he says gods don't dream and this comes mm. back later and I would love for us to have a discussion now about what we think <laughs> That means symbolically in the world. I obviously have an idea, but I want to hear from everyone else. <laughs> I love that line because the way it's delivered is so like patronizing. Mm -hmm. It's it is so like, how dare you think that I would do something so tiny and so human feels like the implication yes. of it. And so I love that because it, it gives you this this idea that there is even more of that separation between Percy and the gods mm -hmm. um, that like longing or wanting something or believing in something different or dreaming overall is so human and what is holding you back. And I, I liked this idea that like, I don't know, to me, dreams can be connected mm -hmm. to hope. And so this idea of hoping for something bigger versus trying mm -hmm. to make it happen and breaking out of a cycle, which Ares is is the god of war. Why would you dream of anything other than chaos your dreaming gives this idea of hope gives this idea of change and mm -hmm. aries wants the cycle to continue regardless and doesn't necessarily care who wins yeah. yeah and we see the dreams and how important they are for example for demigods you know they have all these like glimpses of the future and what's going to happen and, like all this stuff but they're also really vulnerable in those dreams because mm -hmm. they have no control over what's going to happen and Mm -hmm. So it's a very human, very vulnerable, very weak state to be in. Because if you're dreaming, you're asleep. You're vulnerable. And like mm -hmm. Ares being like, gods don't dream. When we know that Kronos has been talking to him in his dreams, in his thoughts and everything. It's just like this, like, how dare you say something like so insulting to me. And it's just such a good moment because like the gods are a representation of humans and like their yeah. ideas they're what like humanity has put upon these like larger than life forces and for him to just be like well i don't do that because that would be a weakness and i'm a god is just like it's so interesting mm -hmm. oh yay i think i'm gonna make several allusions to hades town in tonight's episode but to the world we dream about and to the one we live in now. I have to agree with Marissa that I think the concept of dreaming directly connects to hope and ability to change the future, mm -hmm. to recognize the world around us as something that needs changing, mm -hmm. the world we dream about and the one we live in now. Orpheus in Hades Town is the lead, romantic lead who like because he can see and dream about a better future in the midst of the darkness, he is able to change the minds of the gods and to like usher everybody into a better world or he thinks he might be able to. He can make you see how the world could be in spite of the way that it is. And I think that that's what Percy does and that's mm -hmm. also what Luke does. They both make you see the way yeah. that the world could be in spite of the way mm -hmm. that it is. But of course, the way that they go about doing that is so different. I also like shout out like, I don't know if you guys have read Circe by yes. Madeline Miller. Yes. It's been a long time since I read it. I would love to reread it. Something that I really have has stuck with me since I read it years ago was the idea that the gods as immortal beings are unchanging. 
they mm-hmm. might as well be stone, that they cannot breathe and and make mistakes and yes. change. And Absolutely. that the reason Cersei chooses to live amongst people is because she wants to change and grow and have the opportunity to grow. That characterization of the gods really comes in here, where Ares is like, we don't change, we don't grow. Percy would say otherwise. Poseidon might say otherwise might be convinced to say otherwise. Anyway, Carter, did you want to say anything about God's Don't Dream? <laughs> I, I think that I think that encapsulates everything. I, I do think that there there's this other valence where like dreaming in English, you use the same word to refer to imaginative processes that are very directed and, you know, object oriented, as well as those which are very creative and unmoored and free flowing, right? Like we use the same word to describe both of those things. And I think that it, it like his distaste is coming from like both of those things. It's an idea that like he, he is like a final form that doesn't require, you know, like directed growth. He would not aspire to be anything other than he is. But then also this idea that there is not um, like a whimsy, that there's no like stochasticity um, inherent in in godliness or in like the, the path of great forces and great events in the world, I think is really interesting perspective that we're going to continue to explore. <laughs> we get this line from Annabeth after Ares gets smooshed by the wave. I don't know if it's an exact triplet or if there's other ones, but there's a brilliant tie in a little, just a brilliant bow tie off of you still don't get where you fit into all of this. Why are you so afraid of who you are? She says, and you thought you were just a kid. Mm-hmm. It's symbolizing that he is like, finally officially like stepped into his role, you know, and like he, she's been watching and like plotting this whole time. And she's like, yep. And now you are, you are the guy. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no direct Ares threat. Next time you're in battle, like watch your back or whatever. Oh, but he yeah. does say, you have an enemy for life. I miss the curse. Yeah. Every time you raise your sword in battle, you know, what he said, like, you'll feel me or like something like that. Yeah. It's like, you yeah. punk curse. It reminds me of when Sally says to Grover <laughs> in the first episode, like, swear it, like, yeah. swear you'll protect mm. him, where it's like, yeah. it's not quite swearing on the river sticks, yeah. but it is like, it's I think it's close. leaving room yeah. for Trek that can't have to too be... many guns, you know, like, the, the armory is, <laughs> is a bit full <laughs> as it is. <laughs> I mean, not with that attitude. <laughs> but we can kind of, like, go back in and be like, oh, yeah, that was a swear on the river sticks, or like, that was like a quote-unquote official curse later if we wanted to mm. explain that out in future yeah. seasons. Chekhov can't load all the guns. Let's say that. Yeah, you gotta leave room for Russian roulette. You know yeah. what I mean? Russian roulette. Don't look at his true form. Yeah. If there was too much world building, then why wouldn't we have explained this? Yeah. If there was too much world building, then wouldn't we have somebody sitting on the side being like, oh, like Ares is gonna fight like this. He is going and to use his big Icker. sword. And this way he's gonna bleed something different that's not blood. It was concise. We we like don't know what's gonna happen if we look at him. We just know that it's starting to look cool and then we don't get to see it. So we retain the mystery, yeah. which is appropriate. I did kind of wish, because you get like this quiet moment that Mm. Percy is the last one to turn away. And I wish they had simply added one word to that line, which is Percy, don't look at his true form. Because Annabeth and Grover already look away, like they Mm. instantly know. And it would have given you just a little bit more of that fact that Percy is still the newcomer, despite the fact that we've just watched him fully come in. There are still things that he has to learn and things that he doesn't know. So that's that's the only change I wish. Like Medusa, when he's like... The last one to look away as well because he's not smart. Right. <laughs> well, exactly. He, he doesn't know. This is just information <laughs> that he doesn't have. And now he has it. <laughs> he's also a little not smart. No. I also, True. something about don't look at his true form is like 
the nerdiest thing that has been said the entire series. And I can't not laugh every time I hear it. Just the, the thought of like, don't look at his true form as they turned like their eyes away. I was like, it's about arcana. Like sometimes you need <laughs> yeah. to invoke the idea that there are like worlds of lore that are meticulously known by someone who is not you. I loved it. And then uh, the, the Hades helm stuck on the sand. It looks heavy. Annabeth goes to pick it up, which I love. Invisibility recognizes invisibility realness, you know, like, <laughs> Let me be the one to touch the helm of darkness. I got this. And then we go to commercial. <laughs> yes. In the interest of time, we will not speak more about the Ares fight, but we really could. And Carter broke it down literally second for second in our outline. So if you want to see that. <laughs> I know. I, like, you we, can were, come we were running behind our Patreon. Part of it was that um, I was just really tired last night. And then the other part of it is that, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot happening like you really could go like shot by shot like splashes Whoa. on the camera like angles for like when the per- the camera follows Percy and when it doesn't yeah great stuff great this stuff this could be a three-parter like podcast like it could be yeah. a three-parter truly Listener, just on the fight you, you should pull it up show your family talk about it frame by frame <laughs> yeah or join the special tier of our Patreon where you get access to all of our episode outlines <laughs> you get access to the nine hour unedited episode of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> Can we can we talk about though the shot where you do see the water where he's about Aries is about to kick because I shouted like my sister and I were watching it together and we both were like he's gonna kick him <laughs> in the water <laughs> it's just like, it's set mm-hmm. up so well that you're so close for so much of the fight that you forget mm-hmm. that they're on the beach Aries also seems to genuinely yeah. forget and you allow that like hubris to get in the way of winning that fight. There's no reason Ares should lose. And the only reason is that he forgets yeah. how powerful Percy is and where he draws his power from. So that one little puddle, as soon as they pan to it and mm. you see his like you see it, you're like, oh, it's I know like partially happening. hubris and it's partially cruelty. Like you it's like so characteristic of this character that he would like have defeated a child and decided he's gonna like punt the kid mm. <laughs> and like not think about the consequences. Also yeah. that wave, that wave is scary. And I will shout out, like, you know, Carter and I, as people who happen to be from one of the few places in the world where waves are that big. Yeah. Scary. Very yeah. scary. Instilled the fear of God in me when I saw that. I was like, oh, you got to get out of there. Yeah. Erica has a copy of under. the House of Hades, right? That got destroyed by yeah. like a 30 foot wave. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very true. While they take a commercial break, we're going to take a commercial break. All right. All right. The hook. We're in the Montauk cabin. Percy. That was Megan Mullally. <laughs> communicating with percy through his mind luring the trio into the montauk cabin because again yes we are on the beach of montauk that's where the the pearls judged us to no cerberus yet where is he (laughs) we see here that there's stained glass in the cabin i don't know if we just didn't notice this yeah i didn't notice it either it was like nighttime when we were there last time makes perfect sense we've talked about the stained glass being like you know religious reference to this being a place where there are gods and holy things and of course there would be stained glass in the montauk cabin the place where we know as book readers poseidon and sally met mm-hmm. for the first time this is like mm-hmm. a holy sacred place yeah. it's like it might as well be a temple it might as well be <laughs> it's it's time for us to, to check back in with electo we we got this moment back in episode three where you know like electo and annabeth had this whole conversation that was very like business-like to the point, efficient, like not emotional. And we're picking up on that thread here where we see that this whole time, we don't know exactly what she's been after. Like she's been trying to thwart the quest. It turns out she was there for the helm. It makes perfect sense. But like we watch her basically like just take the helm, smile. Like she, she just this like weird little like lip tremble almost smile thing because she's she's proud of these kids. And that's such a like delightful, delightful addition, a delightful piece of the performance. You know, we, we get this like peaceful transfer in the books, but uh, Megan Mullally is 
Emmy winner, one of the great actors of our time of of modern television. Shade that up. No, it's great. Like she has that yeah. little like look, Agreed. that little smile that's like begrudgingly proud of these kids and what they've yes. accomplished. She's yes. like, wow, I guess you did do all of this. Like, because yeah. I mean, she's obviously impressed by like Annabeth early on, and now it's just yeah. like now like Percy and Annabeth and the Grover, like how far they've come. And it's it's an interesting moment to see that from Electo, just being like, huh, okay. And then she pieces yeah. it out. <laughs> Arguably as much of a parental figure in the arc of the series <laughs> as, like, Chiron or somebody. You know, like, she has, like, followed them on this journey. <laughs> yeah. um, Challenged them. Yeah, they've seen her more than they've seen Annabeth's mom. There so. Yeah, very true. <laughs> so she takes the helm, she's off, and that leaves us with this question about what to do with the bolt. In the books, this is not really a question. In the books, the timeline is not elapsed. We are trying to rush. We're going to get on the plane. We're going to try to deliver this by the deadline. Now, it is fascinating. It did not occur to me when we were thinking about the arc of the show that it would be an open question about what we do with the bolt that we might consider not giving it to Zeus yeah. or not at least like sending Percy yeah. up there to return it. But Annabeth is emphatic and Grover is also emphatic, but maybe not as much as Annabeth because Annabeth might know the great prophecy that, like, Percy might die. It's, like, very plausible that Zeus kills him if he goes to Olympus to try to deliver the bolt. Yeah, I I love the the implication of Annabeth knowing something that Percy doesn't as well. Be, like you're saying, where there's a possibility, there's a very clear danger that this could be the time. And to some degree, also, they know at this point that it would be a question of whether the war continues or not and that Zeus wants the war like the kids are smart enough to know that now it's not completing a quest now it is getting in the way Mm -hmm. of and there's so many little like dominoes that fall by deciding to change the quest deadline like everything from coming to Montauk for the Ares fight to Annabeth giving her necklace to Percy to go to Olympus and not to go into the fight the real big bad is not Ares it is Zeus. It didn't yeah. register in my brain going into the yeah. Ares fight because there was so much going on that she didn't put the necklace on him. Like, I didn't even mm-hmm. think about yeah. it until it happened. And I was like, oh my God, what a delightful little change. And this shot of Leah walking up to, like, undoing her necklace, like, in silence, like, that that heavy sigh, like, fine, if you're going to do this, like, you need as much luck as you can get. And putting that necklace on him as, like, like Walker is, like, watching her do it, breathing through his mouth. It's so, <laughs> so precious. He reaches up instinctively to do the thing that she's done a few times and, like, Which is play twiddle with the with ring. The ring. <laughs> and, like, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what that ring is yet, you know? He doesn't know what the ring is yet. He's All he knows mirroring. is that it's important to her and he's mirroring <laughs> her. It's great. It's also something that Annabeth would never have done in episode one. You know, like it goes to show how much she has grown in being emotional and personal and vulnerable around the boys. And this whole conversation is something that she wouldn't have done. Like it's combining at this point through the quest, both her like pre-existing knowledge about the gods and the way that they use their power with a different perspective about how we should relate to that. Like, you know, episode one, episode two, Annabeth is never going to say like, like she almost is like, we should keep the bolt. (laughs) That is a counterfactual that I have a lot of questions about. Would we envision like like the next episode season is going to be like a thriller where they're on the run from the gods, like hiding with a bolt and like <laughs> destroying random <laughs> Olympians with it to stay oh um, safe? I don't know. Like, Annabeth walks into the throne room and says, the war ends now. And she <gasps> slams the lightning yeah. bolt yeah. into the ground. Stop at her house, grandma. Exactly. <laughs> um. 
<laughs> also, like with the change of the quest, everything that happens in this episode becomes an active choice Ooh. rather than like a requirement yes. of the quest. So by making that change, you every moment you have of Annabeth giving this necklace, of them discussing what to do with with the lightning bolt, it gives them exactly. so much more yeah. agency than they agency have. It makes you think about yeah. fate. Fate versus mm-hmm. what they yeah. are able to control. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait, wasn't there like a very special line that Annabeth says to Percy when she gives him the necklace in the book and it's reconciliation, Athena and Poseidon together. And what she mm-hmm. says in this moment is in the show, you're going to need all the luck you can get. That difference, I think, just goes to show how different the relationship arc is yeah. Yeah. in the book versus the show. Like we are way mm-hmm. past Athena, Athena and, Poseidon and Poseidon at this yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> we took care of that in yeah. episode three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just overall want to give Leah her flowers because I thought that she did such a beautiful, beautiful job in this entire cabin scene. Like For maybe sure. my favorite of her, all of her performances. I just felt that she was so dropped in to mm-hmm. the emotional vulnerability yeah. that Annabeth is displaying here. It was amazing. We should probably shout out the very important line. I think we've referenced this. Percy says, I'm done running from monsters. And who is he talking about? <laughs> Zeus. Oh, it's so We perfect. are really mm-hmm. priming ourselves for something dramatic on Olympus. Oh, yeah. should we go? Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Carter, talk about Star Wars, will you? Oh my God. Yeah, the second <laughs> reference for the episode. When we were doing the watch along, I think Eric and I were both like, oh, this looks like probably one of the Thor movies, right? Is it giving Asgard? Is it, what's it called? Like, what's it called? Like Invincible City or something? There's something, uh, that set piece in Thor Love and Thunder where like Zeus is there and Hercules is there. And I was like, oh, maybe it looks like that. Maybe it looks like some combination of these things. The more that I stared at it, I think the actual closest reference for the set is um, Naboo from Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Where we have a lot of these um, sort of like sandy colored stone buildings with aquamarine turquoise domes on top of them. Very grand, very lush. And, and like the effect is also like a lot of things. It looks like there's a lot of buildings. There's a multiplicity that's a little bit surprising, but I think is faithful to the way that the book describes it. Olympus is like essentially like a, a city that is thriving. It is, however, completely empty because of the war. It's like abandoned. There's no one walking around. Yeah. Nothing like that. And the scoring is super ominous. Erica points out it is it is Dorian. No, well you said it's it's modal. And I was and you were like, I don't know what mode it is. I'm fairly positive it's Dorian, but I wouldn't quote. It is Dorian. Caveat to that is that it sounds like um our family the listeners are familiar with the piece little sunflower it's like a jazz standard that basically involves you like going through all the modes in succession that is i think quarterly what is going on here where we're doing a lot of like artificial like flats and naturals to like retain this like rigidity of the um, interval spacing as we like go up anyway it sounds unsettling i think that's the primary objective it is meant to unsettle you and mm-hmm. also frighten you it'd be imposing yeah it's powerful then we get another luke flashback where they're just chit-chatting now this is youth pastor luke here <laughs> he's leading youth group he's having a one-on-one meeting with percy where they're talking One might about even say future. summer counselor <laughs> but there's a difference between camp counselor and youth group leader because one of them is preaching yeah and luke sure. is preaching here yeah mm-hmm. fair percy says sure. the gods are all powerful but they have to play by the rules and they create demigods so we can break the rules for them but if we can break the rules and they can't shouldn't they be just as afraid of us as we are of them and Luke does a little chuckle and a little look down, look up, and says, <laughs> "He looks so. Proud You're learning of him. fast." Luke tucked his <laughs> one lock of hair behind his ear. <laughs> He's like, "Let's He's make so history." Proud. So proud. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! It's the true, writing though. of this is incredible. The way that we have like Luke doing true cult leader fantasy, like asking these leading questions and providing him with selective details about the power structure and the misbehavior of Olympians and leading in to this 
beautiful analogy about Annabeth being afraid of spiders because this is not a canonical piece of lore that we've gotten yet at this point. Mm -hmm. It's something that we got in Waterland of the books and now are getting not through clunky exposition, but instead through a (laughs) strong analogy. It's a characterizing story to help you to understand Luke's perspective on the Olympians, to understand probably like some actual facts. It's an analogy that really fits in this moment as Percy looks so, so small and as Olympus's decked out visual set is humongous, the visual idea of like Percy being the spider and Zeus being Annabeth you know like a big big human it's resonating the resonance is is occurring here and we are so prepared for something so violent and disrespectful to happen (laughs) when we meet Zeus this is the line for me in this episode where the the writer's computer was on fire where they were like ha 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 I did it was (laughs) you think they sat back and had to do like a little pose and be like oh yeah they had to shift their weight to either hip and be like oh Two things you never want to be at the same time are small and scary. Oh, I cooked. Oh, no. They, they spilled. They spilled a bit with that one. Yeah. <laughs> and that brings us to the throne room. Wow. wow. It looks exactly like the underworld. Yeah, it looks like the underworld. It mm. is the mirror image. We have immediately dropped into a Shakespearean drama. Like the second that we got that wide shot, that wide, wide, wide shot where you see all of the thrones empty and Zeus sitting on the one gigantic middle throne with bad posture in the coat. Lear, Coriolanus, like (laughs) all of these things, everything about, it's also like, um, it's Lord of the Rings. Yes, set design, hello, Mm, it literally. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's so imposing. And like, you would think this like one man in this huge scene, like would look small and like maybe insignificant, but he takes up so much like room and power and it's yeah like insane that he's mm-hmm. just like this speck and you're just like laser focused in on this man like it's so wild it is a shakespearean if you will choice to not make zeus a giant the way they do in the books but instead say we're going to have to find somebody and set up the shot such that we can funnel your attention effectively into this one person and create the imposition the grandeur the unhinged from reality. He may as well be 20 feet tall. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Seriously. That's such a good job. And there's something scarier about him not being 20 feet tall, like to be able to strike that fear and that yes. imposition in such a, a, to be able to to not use CGI yeah, to make it because that's huge. not why Zeus is scary. Like he, he's not going to step on yeah. you. <laughs> he's going to use this weapon <laughs> that any human could use to kill him. And you. he's also... He's going to be so patronizing that you will want oh, yeah. to jump out of the throne room yeah. into the skies. Also, the thrones, <laughs> the thrones go wild because even though they're not like the like quirky way that they're described in the books, they yeah. are really detailed. And you could go mm-hmm. in and probably identify probably all of them. I didn't have mm-hmm. time to do that yet. But like my eyes immediately went to the one um, audience right of Zeus's throne is Hera's. It's like covered in peacock feathers. Yes. The slow walk that Zeus stands up and walks to Percy is you can hear his heels clicking on the floor. It's another mirror of Hades walking through his big empty palace to talk Mm -hmm. to the kids, except Hades did it with pep in his step and he was so excited and he had his arms spread out wide before he got to them and he was warm and inviting. And he immediately talked. He's like greeting the kids originally. Zeus is giving you nothing. He doesn't speak. With Hades versus Zeus, the energy of comedy versus drama, extreme imposition. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. so and good. he doesn't say anything. He just lets Percy speak. That is like the most like 
<laughs> like NBA silly little power move. Do you think Zeus read how to win friends and influence people? <laughs> Zeus is giving like Alec Baldwin's character in 30 Rock with like like the idea of being like, oh, I'm going to show up to negotiation. We'll sit in silence for five minutes because I'm not going to be the one to talk first. That's literally what happens here. And you get this moment of Percy just like babbling, trying to pull out all these excuses and justifications to further, again, give you that characterization of like Zeus has all the time. He has all the power. He doesn't need to offer anything. He's just going to sit there and let you make a fool of yourself until he feels, sees fit to cut you off and correct you. Like literally Percy is explaining why we got to this point and Zeus just interrupts and says, you failed. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's Michelle Yeoh realness. It's Michelle Yeoh level <laughs> drama and disappointment. But we're specifically talking about Crazy Rich Asians. I know that Carter and I reference that a lot internally and maybe that's not always clear, but we're specifically <laughs> no. talking about Michelle Yeoh, Crazy yeah. Rich Asians. No, I 100% feel that. Yeah. As someone who's watched that movie like 10 times, I absolutely feel that. Thank you for following me on that. <laughs> also, his first words being like the first words Zeus speaks in this show being you failed. I mean, are what, yeah, what a choice. I'm amazing. Percy's trying to explain the threat of Kronos and Zeus just walks away and comes back with this monologue that is, oh my God. So perfect. It is everything. I, I Well, I, it's, it's honestly a little bit hard for me to tell how good it is because the delivery is so excellent and it's so immediately lodges That's itself the thing. into you. Like Lance Reddick could have read a receipt and I would have been terrified yeah. and moved <laughs> to tears. Like It's giving you super yeah. high arched drama, but not campy because it is so mm -hmm. grounded in the intimacy of the family story. Like that is what he's giving you here is like, he's giving scary like grandpa. a really yeah. imposing yeah. person, but, but, but it's deeply like felt. I like when he characterizes Kronos in the dialogue and in his performance, you get, I, I know you're afraid, but I know him. I was there. Don't mm -hmm. tell me about this. In the in the writing itself, you do get a direct parallel back yeah. to Ares' speech about his family. That yes. is what we do. When you catch that reference, you get the same double mirror. We're getting this mirror with like with Luke and Percy and their relationship and and the thing that things that they've lost in their parents. But you get the exact same mirror now with Zeus and Ares, and then Zeus and Kronos, and getting that same sort of sins mm. of the father mm -hmm, passing mm -hmm. down. Just because it's beautiful, I'm going to read it. You may go. I know where Kronos is. I put him there. I know who Kronos is. I am his son. Of course he's gathering strength. Of course he's coming. That is what we do. We snap and plot and strive. It was only a matter of time before he did it again. Thank you for the news. It is the only reason I'm letting you leave alive. That last line too, so unnecessary. Oh. <laughs> but he's just like drilling it in like, I have all the power here and you are just a boy. When Percy starts to irritate him and get in his face about war being silly and unnecessary and this actor yells, boy, and the lightning flashes, that is one of the most frightening, iconic, that, that is what power and disrespect yeah. looks like. It would, yeah. yeah, they really cooked yeah. on this. I feel like the, the strongest parallel here that I am thinking about is literally portions of this piece sound like they are from um, George W. Bush's speech on the boat in 2003. Do we all know what I'm talking about? Very early in the Iraq war, George W. Bush was like, we won. The Iraq war is like probably for these showrunners that like one of the foundational experiences of like American injustice and like what it looks like for um, a person in power to lie and to twist things and to be able to with impunity just recreate realities that will favor whatever it is they feel like doing on a given day. And that is so like in this moment where like Zeus acknowledges that the reason for the war is moot, but he's still going to win it anyway. I, I think that is 
it, it's such a powerful story about like how America <laughs> works that was not there in the original version. But again, kids need these stories about 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 the injustice of of the way that war operates and and the the deceit that is so frequently a part of the way that power is wielded and like flimsily, flimsily like given justifications for violence. And we haven't had the Western civilization conversation explicitly in the show yet, Mm -hmm. but for kids to still be able to draw parallels between the way that people in power are abusing that power is important. This is taking us into Percy launching a more formal critique because I think he originally comes in believing that Zeus (laughs) is going to hear about Kronos and immediately stop the war, change Mm -hmm. objectives, believe him, be on the right side. And instead, because of his focus on this war, Percy hones in on this critique. The thesis, the crux is, quote, they don't support you because they love you. They obey because they are afraid, which is the kind of thing that we've been winding up to a lot in this series. But this is this is the crux of it. This is not, you know, like Annabeth explaining to Hephaestus that she understands the ways in which the gods are cruel. This is not Percy and Annabeth saying that we have a difference of opinion in a way that we were raised when it comes to understanding what familial love looks like. This is Percy, who is kind of, as far as this ideological discussion goes, like one end of the axis against Zeus, who really is the other far end of that axis in terms of the conditionality of love, the idea that power is like the ultimate prism through which to understand relationships. It's quite impactful. And you can see like the the way that we solidify the impact and have Percy quote unquote win this argument is by Zeus like flipping out and losing his temper, which is also like a very interesting choice that Zeus doesn't change his mind. He doesn't agree. He just loses control. It does so much characterization work for him to freak out. His eyes get so big. He takes that huge inhale and he whips out the master bolt because it is so embarrassing for you to get that ticked off by a 12-year-old. Yeah. And to prove the 12-year-old's point. Yes, exactly. You're proving his point. You are so used to everybody fearing you that you can't handle like a little bit of critique. Mm. A little bit of constructive criticism. <laughs> yep. And then Poseidon shows up. Chekhov's Poseidon's someday in the diner flashback scene, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Chekhov's someday he'll be ready. <laughs> the scene I, I find very effective. You might recall that in the books. is something similar. Poseidon and Zeus are both there. They're having a conversation this whole time. And in the books, it's a lot more like even keeled where like you can tell that they just had this spat. But there is something about the combination of the high drama of Zeus's performance and the disagreement with Percy into the different shades of relationship that Zeus and Poseidon have that is really effectively bringing to the front this like overlay of the political and the family dynamics that are simultaneously operating when we think about Greek mythology and when we think about what the show is trying to do where like Poseidon and Zeus are both warring factions and also like brothers, people who like have a deep familiarity and understanding with each other who will go from the mode of like, I'm going to try to kill you in one second and then two seconds later be in the mode of oh who spreads gossip the most on olympus like who do we think knows based on who knew originally about all the stuff that's going down (laughs) this technically exists in the book but there's something about seeing the physical enactment of both ends of the performance of like vengeful king Mm -hmm. into like kind of like irritated younger brother who's trying to figure out what's going on that Mm. is very interesting. There's like a video essay that will maybe link that maybe has been linked before about narratives in children's media about like fascism and political revolution. Yes, we have linked that before. Mm-hmm. I think we'll we have again. linked this before. A critique that has come to the front specifically related to like children's cartoons is that 
oftentimes you analogize these things that that you are creating the like unethical political structure within the family structure and that because of the ways that that overlay is not always like a hundred percent something that you can like port over into reality and be like this is what i do in family and this is what i do in like revolution and in like it's like zuko and daniel de kim it's yeah. Zuko and Daniel Day Cam. It's Katra and Adora, Shira, yeah. um, among other things. We'll we'll be monitoring this. This is like how it had to go, you know. Like this is this is the story of Greek mythology, and we'll and we'll we'll see what the critiques are that will spill out from this. Mm-hmm. Poseidon surrenders the war. Yes, drama. And I love that it's. I love that you know talking about agency. It actually gives so much agency to Poseidon to be able to choose in this moment to protect his son. Yeah. By yes. letting go of the glory and the kleos and, and the war and, like, fighting. Let's yeah. talk about gods don't dream. Poseidon is, okay, I'm not a Poseidon apologist, but <laughs> he is clearly distinguishing himself from Zeus and from Ares and some of the worser Olympians by saying, I'm going against Zeus's idea that, like, oh, just because I started the war, I'm going to finish it now and I'm going to win it. Yeah. He is like, mm-hmm. okay, maybe I don't need to do that. Maybe my son is more important at this moment. Again, the bar is on the floor, but, you know. Yeah. This is also, like, we're, we're lining up... I, I was going to bring up Howl's Moving Castle when we were talking about the Iraq War comparisons because, of course, Howl's Moving Castle is, like, a critique of the Iraq War, first and foremost. But this is a moment that really, like, brings that critique into the forefront because you're really, like... Poseidon in this moment says that he surrenders the war and immediately, like, it is clear that that means, like, both nothing and everything. Like, we're not going to have a war anymore, but what does surrendering mm. materially mean for Poseidon's life and for Zeus's life and for everyone else's life? It just means that there isn't going to be a war anymore. Yeah. And, like, the arbitrary <laughs> fact of that, that, like, we were going to do this war and it was going to accomplish nothing, nothing is so, like, it forces yeah. you to, like, really, like, stare that in the eye and say, like, wow. A lot of conflict is is not sufficiently examined in terms of like what what change it means to inflict upon the world. I do think the TV show did a better job of explaining how someone like Sally could fall in love with someone like Poseidon. You do get these glimpses of who he must have been when they met and how he could be a little bit better because that was something that always I was like, man, Sally seems like such a such a nice person. How did you how did you mess this one up? But you get the glimpses of him like with the the scene that we mentioned earlier with with him sitting with her at the restaurant and and comforting her and um and you know forfeiting a war that uh, was for nothing to begin with that you know we have to acknowledge the fact that he was going to go to war anyway <laughs> before he forfeits. But I think you get enough out of this version of Poseidon that you're like fine. Yeah. I get it. I get why you it is so much like to go back to Cersei that like I think that Poseidon around Sally was probably the best version of himself and a very different person than the Poseidon we see today and like the full god Poseidon that like with Cersei like spending more and more time around Odysseus like caused her to feel more like a human and more like she had the possibility to like live a different life and have a different fate and I'm sure that that's how Poseidon felt around Sally but ultimately he still is a god which is tragic. There's a lot of good stuff here. Um, there is there is the the actual book direct dialogue. Yes. I cross referenced this with the actual mm-hmm. um, chapter of the Lightning Thief. Obedience doesn't come naturally to you, does it? No, sir. I must take some of the blame. I suppose the sea does not like to be restrained. Also, the first time Poseidon is taking like credit for anything to do with Percy and just you know acknowledging, yeah. hey, that's my second time, I guess, acknowledging, hey, mm. that's my son. But it's just so accurate to who they both are. And I'm very much that person that's like, 
Percy Jackson is Sally's son. Above all, mm-hmm. that's sure. Sally's For son. Sure. But you know, those mm-hmm. little like ticks here and there. Yeah, that's Poseidon. It also makes you wonder like how much of those moments that you see Sally struggle with him in the earlier moments are also reminding her mm-hmm. of Poseidon. Yes. Like that I'm thinking specifically when he won't get yeah. out of the car and he locks the door and she's like it does it's not going to change anything it's just going to change on how difficult you make it before mm-hmm. we say goodbye. Which first of all I was like ow. Um that was a little harsh, <laughs> but second of all <laughs> in this moment you're like okay, how much of that was her having that like horrible moment of like this is reminding me of a man who can't be there. Yeah. That's definitely a storytelling not trope but device where like single mom's relationship with her son accidentally mimics or like brings back trauma from her relationship with her son's father and the first thing that came to mind for me was the big mm-hmm. little lies tv adaptation i just saw oh. shailene woodley like flash through my mind as you oh said no that. Uh, besides yeah. like oh kyron taught you a lot of stuff and we know that it's not true mm-hmm. it was all Sally. literally nothing <laughs> percy was at camp for two days yeah <laughs> i don't know when hades will return her he can be difficult when he wants to make a point is this a May reference? Oh, yeah. Make Stellan? Yes. Oh, yeah. Correct. It is. <laughs> and then finally, we get the classic Walker looking like the absolute ooh-woo emoji with, with tears in his eyes, staring up at his he dad. He looks like a cartoon. He looks like specifically like an anime. They will do a thing where they'll change the character and be the chibi version. Yeah. Like, that is what he's doing. He did that Big to his eyes. body somehow. Yeah. He literally he made himself a himself. chibi version. Yeah. He does it again in the Luke scene later. He literally makes himself a chibi and his eyes yes. are like glowing yeah. and sparkling. <laughs> Anyway, he's looking up at his dad and he's like, do you dream? Do you dream of mom? It's such a like, you know, like divorced kid like moment. Like, yes, trying yes. to have this conversation yes. with like your dad who left you and just being like, but like trying to have that hope that, you know, maybe even like maybe things could be fixed type of thing. Oh, it's so hard. And the way that like, oh, thank you, Toby Steven. But the way Poseidon like <laughs> looks at him, and then there's the neck grab. I'm obsessed with that neck grab. Oh my god! The it's neck such grab, a, like, the like ruffling in the back of the hair. Thing to it's do. so father son. And the way he does like kind of involuntarily, and it makes him sad because then he is going to continue to be a deadbeat. You know, <laughs> Poseidon. I want to dislike him so badly, but he's also Captain Flint, and that makes it very hard to dislike him. Or I think that that like all of that dialogue is a reminder of the stuff that we talked about in the last episode, because it's kind of where we emotionally and like, that's where we emotionally put a lot of that, you know, th- th- this idea that like a big part of the reason why Poseidon is staying away is because it's, it is impossible for him to not it's impossible for him to be in Percy's life more, but it is difficult for him to be more engaged in Percy's life while Percy is still able to follow Sally's whole create like my life is to mean anything I need to make it and choose it for myself like Percy's not gonna be able to do that if Poseidon is always present. Now, did he choose the correct balance? Probably not. And that's gonna be something that we're gonna continue to to monitor as we proceed. Talk about drama. The fact that he doesn't respond and it leaves so much open for us that there is so much. I do think he's thinking about offering Sally that palace and the way that he can't tell his son that, like as a divorced Mm -hmm. dad, he can't just be like, well, part of this is your mom's fault. You know, it wasn't just me who left her. Like he can't say any of that and leaving it open for us to interpret and to be like, what is he thinking? What would he say if he, if he could possibly put it into words, but he can't put it into words in the same way that he can't make eye contact with Sally. Like, it's too much that they can't. It's, like, so raw that he can't even talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so different from, like, that conversation in the books with Percy where he's, like, at one point he says, like, it was my mistake or something like that about Percy. And in this moment he's, like, 
it doesn't say anything like that. And it's just this like very sad and heartbreaking like father son moment. It's just oh, it's mm-hmm. just so good. It's so different and so good. It sets up such a different dynamic. Because, you know, he is a forbidden child. Like, he can't be in his life because that lets the other gods know that he exists and they would kill him instantly. But Percy doesn't know that. And something I wonder, does Sally know that? Not that he is a forbidden child. She knows that part. But, like, the prophecy surrounding Percy. This is a question we have asked. And I, Carter and I mm-hmm. believe that she knows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems likely. Yeah. Especially yeah. given that she she's, you know, like she sees through the mess. She is like seer adjacent. If someone's gonna know their way around a prophecy and be able to figure stuff out, it probably would be her. Yeah. Like beside, you know. I also the the point that you made, Alexis, about the lack of the line, it was my mistake. I was so happy that they changed that actually, because in the conversation with Zeus, he does say that his this kid shouldn't even exist. And instead of sort of reiterating that, which is something that I think all, all of these kids must be struggling with, but especially Percy Jackson as the only child of a god who doesn't want to pay attention to him is even, it, it, there's something that cuts a little bit more deep about that because you're looking at, you know, like all of these other kids have the ability to, to look around an entire cabin full of kids that are abandoned by the same parent and Percy is the only child, which also gives the feeling of like, well, if I'm the only one, why can't you be with my mom? Why can't you be my dad? It's not like you have so many other kids to be paying attention to. You just really don't want to be my dad. It's so much worse. Instead of having Zeus say it was my mistake or have him having him even mention the forbidden child, all you see is him defend Percy yeah. and defend and call his him a hero instead oh, when he says yes. like just like you're tall tall yeah oh yeah to, to close the loop on the the do god's dream conversation from earlier second hades town reference from chant if you would like to go back and listen this is from the song titled chant that is the reason we're on this road and the seasons are wrong and the wind is so strong that's why times are so hard it's because of the gods the gods have forgotten the song of their love and i don't think it's that the gods don't dream. I think it's that they have forgotten how to, and that Percy, much like Orpheus does in Hades Town, is going to remind them of their humanity through love and convince them that they can dream and that they are capable of change, even though they have been lying to themselves and telling themselves that they are not for millennia. This is the plot of Hades Town, um, but it is mirrored here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cheese ball smash. Cheese ball smash. Poo! That was icon. Okay, that shot. Flute powder also. power. Flute powder power. Amazing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that came out of the recesses of my brain. That was not. That was a reference specifically <laughs> to a very Potter musical, which is okay because um, that was unlicensed. Listen, I was in college <laughs> when that came out. I had that whole thing memorized. <laughs> that really, I don't know how that unlodged from my brain. I, I'm really, that felt that like getting real. a kernel. That was really real. A popcorn kernel out of your teeth, you know? That was like, whoa, where did that come oh, from? Yeah. How old and is that? And now it's gone. And now it won't come back. <laughs> he, he did play that like so dramatically, like pulling out the pearl and just kind of staring at him and he doesn't say anything else afterwards. You watch it like slowly like spill out of his hand and we're back at camp. And you know we're back at camp in the woods because what? There's a flute playing. <laughs> Nothing says the woods like a flute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walking through the cabins, this beautiful sound design where the music swells so you can't hear the applause at first. It very, very much feels like he's having a piece dissociative because, you know, he just got cheese yeah. ball smashed over mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then slowly you can start to hear some of the applause coming in. Um, and as Annabeth runs up to hug him, ah, 
you can start to hear the cheers. And like, that's when the sound really comes back in. Because why? Because Annabeth is his tether to the mortal world. We do have to pause for a second. (laughs) Yeah. We see a pair of twins, a pair of like Asian boys who are like maybe 12 years old. Are they the Soul Brothers? We don't know. I don't believe they're credited as such. They, you know, but that like that could just be a union rule thing because like they don't have any lines, so you don't like credit them as named characters, right? Um, <laughs> they're just extras. How many twins? They look right. They look no, sure. right. If you still have their contact information, find them. Whoever you, you know, um, they might. They should be the Soul Brothers, probably. They should be. They should be. <laughs> okay, we had like two seconds of like, wow, this is like so warm. We like did it. We we have accomplished everything we came here to do. And then things are off. And this moment is so... There there are actually layers to it. I did not perceive multiple layers, but then I had to, like, pause and think about it. The first level is just that this is... This is... This is what sets Persebeth apart from other stories. The fact that this hug is not just a hug, but that, that there is so much intimacy and collaboration and like partnership that is going into this that 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 she is hugging him because she's trying to communicate additional information because they are not just people who like each other they are collaborators who have a unique and singular partnership and respect for one another that is necessary to accomplish things that are of value and that this is a dynamic that we're going to see change and develop and grow over a long period of time is very important i just thought I just found this extra romantic. Like, some people will be haters and watch this. Not that we're against hatering, but, like, I think it is possible to watch this scene and say, like, oh, what a, like, not fun couple moment. Like, instead of just having a hug and, like, sitting there and, like, marinating in it, they're, like, also working. But that's their story. The story is that they're also working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's also, like, what Percy loves yes. about Annabeth. It's strategic. strategic. It's smart. She mm-hmm. is looking ahead. And bringing yeah. that in. Absolutely. And she's also looking out for him. She's protecting him. Yeah. So, boo the haters. haters. In this particular context. The, the other lens on this <laughs> is that I have to keep reminding myself that, like, they were trying to retain at this point, and at many points, the possibility that if you have not read the books, you might think that Annabeth is going to betray him. And I think that that is possibly also what is going on here. If you put this together with the next mm. scene of Annabeth, Luke, and Percy talking about Clarice in the entryway of the cabin and hatching a plan for what the next phases of her arrest, uh, something like a, a future disciplinary action for her are going to be. Ooh, uh, I'm uncomfortable with all of these words, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just had a physical reaction to having to say the word arrest. Uh, um, <laughs> anyway, it, it seems like they were trying to retain that possibility and that that is also probably a little bit what they were trying to do with Annabeth's early pro moment in the previous episode that like we are trying to retain some elements of distance and mystery. They're trying to leave some options open, which I think is respectable and important. This leads us into the it's complicated conversation scene where Luke, Percy, and Annabeth are catching each other up, basically. Yes. Strategic discussion. This dynamic is so important. It's really the first time we've gotten to see uh, Annabeth-Luke team up Mm -hmm. talking to Percy because they've had some time Mm -hmm. now while Percy was up on Olympus to, like, Mm -hmm. get their plan in order and stuff. And you can see them, like, Annabeth is, like, standing closer to Luke, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. it's all of a sudden, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. It is Annabeth and Luke standing on one side and Percy standing on the other side of the room, like, facing them. It's a bit of a reality check. Like, we may have just gone on a week-long quest together and gotten really close, but Annabeth is still closer with Luke. Annabeth is still finishing Luke's sentences. Yeah. Literally that. <laughs> like, they've known each other. Like, that's yeah. her big brother. Like, they have a relationship that you're never going to understand, Percy, which is important to see the two of them standing next to each other mm-hmm. for five minutes from now, you know? And yeah. this trio, I think, like, you know, obviously mm-hmm. there is a main trio 
of the extended Percy Jackson and the Olympian series. That includes Percy and Annabeth and Grover. I do think that this trio is really also, like, very significant. Mm -hmm. And that the interactions between the three of them is something that is really important for us to follow. And it feels extra, like, juicy and weighty to have this scene. Because we haven't actually, up until this point, had a scene that was the three of them by themselves interacting. And we'll get another one. The Annabeth to yeah. Luke continuum is where Percy is trying to fit himself on yes. this, like ideological scale. It is ideological as much as it is historic, interpersonal, relational. Absolutely. Yes. I want to shout out Sophia, who was on last week, who texted me all of her thoughts on this episode <laughs> and was also like sent me a very long voice message being like, wait a second, when did Annabeth start getting sus of Luke? Because for her to follow them, you know, she says she's yes. going to go, whatever, mm -hmm. like, follow Clarice. But for her to follow mm. Luke and Percy with the invisibility cap, like, is she starting to get suspicious now? Is she starting to get suspicious later? Has she already been suspicious? When does she decide that yeah. she is going to follow them into the woods? That is a huge question. To me, especially because I just watched it in, like, one sitting, yeah. basically, I feel like the first moment you have the truth of that is in the train when they're talking to mm -hmm. him through the mm -hmm. rainbow like through iris because you get like she does not want to tell luke more information that needs to be told and also luke was not the intended call she's immediately suspicious of why he's in chiron's office like she's specifically asking like where's the person i called and she cuts off before percy can like very trustingly give more information than he should i kind of from that and then watching it in one sitting all the way through to the end feel like there is a element of distrust that she already had for him before we got to camp mm. like before we find out that they have this back relationship or all these different things because when you're that close with someone there also has to be a level of his issues mm -hmm. with Hermes she has certain things that she's not willing to say and she also when you go to the Lotus Casino and she uses like we're friends of Luke's as this intent to hopefully like bring Hermes onto their side. And she uses that as a strategic moment and says like he wants to try to save that relationship. There's also a knowledge that that relationship is so bad that Luke is willing to do something not great. So I do think there are hints of it if you go back and you don't watch it week to week mm -hmm. when you when you go through a binge. There are hints of, hints of it that it may have already started before Percy I even think that's fair. I think it's probably old. like Percy in this episode we see come to the conclusion that Luke is the person who betrayed them. We watch that in real time. I think it is very plausible yeah. that Annabeth got all the same information and would also come to that conclusion maybe faster. <laughs> Especially, like, the smoking gun, it seems, based on the way that it's shown here, is, like, once Annabeth probably heard about the shoes and Tartarus, I think it is not that hard for her to imagine, like, okay, I've sensed, like, a small shift in Luke's behavior that would be imperceptible to a lot of people. I know more about his ideological positions than most people. I'm going to piece all these things together and conclude that probably something was up with the shoes and that that is indicative of something broader and that I need to be careful. Yeah, I think the shoes are really the tell-all. Yeah. But when she makes that decision that she's going to follow them is, ooh, we don't, we'll, we don't know. We'll have to ask Leah one day. In her mind <laughs> of, like, playing Annabeth when that decision came about. Okay, mm -hmm. y'all. The moment we've all been waiting for. The moment I have been waiting for my whole life. It's time to talk about the freaking betrayal scene. The first time we watched this episode, it was because both of us were like blasting through the screeners because we had an interview with Charlie and we wanted to be able to talk about this. <laughs> and when I tell you the gaggery 
I should pull up the text and find them because there's a lot of like out. all caps. Oh my God. We have to pivot. We have to talk. About, like, yeah. If you listened to our episode yesterday and you were like, wow, Eric and Carter seemed really disorganized. It's because we were, <laughs> because we had a whole plan. And then last minute we were like, do you mind if we just completely throw that plan out the window? And he was like, yeah. And he was totally down to talk about other things, but we were like scrambling. And now watching it back, I'm like, oh, I have so many other specific questions that I would want to ask about specific beats in this scene and little moments. Anyway, we were very gagged especially having like spoken a little bit with Daphne before we got to see this and like known how much she cares about this character we felt like Luke had the potential to become more of an anti-hero and more sympathetic and then when this happened I was like you're kidding me this is what I would have wanted like I would not change this scene at all if I was going to adapt these books from what they were and make them more impactful and more enticing and more engaging for a television audience to build out Luke from more than just being in Percy's narrative perspective this is exactly what I would want to do if it isn't what you would want to do maybe we'll change your mind I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I forgot that the fireworks are actually written into the book because I was like, what a great choice. Like, oh my gosh, that's actually a detail from the book, but it is so well done here. I didn't love the birch tree set. I felt like it felt so disjointed from camp. I have a feeling that this set needed to exist so that we could have the fireworks and the lighting. Mm-hmm. And it is so like evocative because it makes you feel like you're at summer camp and it's so exciting. It's like a party atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It's all colorful. But then quickly as it gets more ominous through the scene, it starts to feel a little bit more like war. Like there is a war brewing. Mm-hmm. We are child soldiers in the midst of something very dangerous about to happen. And that like duality between their fireworks or it's a war is the duality that Percy Jackson exists inside of. So it's just so smart. Mm-hmm. I loved it. The other layer of the fireworks is that we're, we're trying to emphasize one of the other layers of the dynamic between Percy and Luke, which is that Luke thinks of Percy with both like genuine like empathy, admiration, like he wants to recruit Percy, which is Mm -hmm. what we get happening in this scene. But there's also this moment when he talks about the fireworks, Uh, you, you can see the jealousy. And in the books, that's like a very prominent part of their their dynamic that, you know, like Luke's quest failed and that um chronos in many ways would prefer percy to be mm-hmm. his primary like demigod avatar over luke and it's just in these little remarks about how they pulled out all the stops for percy's quest being a success yeah. that give you that texture of the additional like okay how much how big of a grain of salt do we use to water down like everything Luke says about the genuineness of wanting Percy to come with him. When we consider the fact that Luke has this jealousy and when we consider the fact that Luke is really like not finished emotionally processing a lot of bad things that have happened in his relationship with his father. Yeah. So for me, it's interesting because in the books, when he completes his quest, like he talks about it in this movement, like you said, like the, that contrast between Percy finishing this quest and everyone pulling out all the stops and when Luke finishes his quest, that is a repeat quest, and everyone pitied him because, you know, he comes back with this scar and this, like, jealousy between both of them. Like, it's it's such an interesting, like, position to where they are, but that doesn't happen in the show. Like, there is that jealousy, but it's not the main factor there. And then when mm-hmm. Percy finally figures it out and tells Luke that, like, that, like, second that you see Luke just looking so devastated like so devastated and Mm -hmm. like he like i feel like at that second like he knows percy isn't gonna follow him he straight up looks like he's about to cry yes oh my gosh luke like that second like he knows it's done and he knows what he has to do and it really is the 
Luke line, I didn't think you'd give them to Grover to wear, where you see that mm-hmm. shift, in my opinion, and you see, yeah. like, the chibi eyes um, start to activate mm-hmm. on both of them, where they're just, like, <laughs> watering and blinking at each other and being like, yeah. no, I don't want to hurt you. You're my brother. Yeah. But because, like, A... <laughs> Luke has a relationship with Grover that we haven't gotten to see firsthand, but we know that Grover was Luke's protector, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. based on this characterization and based on this mm-hmm. moment and how Charlie delivers this line, like, I don't think that Luke blames Grover at all for Talia's death. I think yes. that Luke completely yeah. blames Zeus. And yeah, so he yeah, would absolutely. never wish any ill will on Grover. Like he says, I, I, yeah. I would never want, you know, I didn't think you would give him the Grover to wear. Feels so, so, so bad about that. And also, this is like the first glimpse that we see of, you know, although Luke's intentions might be good, he is going to not fully think through some of his actions and the consequences of his actions and the violence that is going to take place because of his actions and his choices. Yeah. Oh, it's so hard, though, because, again, as your resident Luke hater <laughs> and <Please>. unsympathizer, <laughs> it's so difficult. I think this scene is masterfully acted mm. in mm-hmm. a way that it makes you care for him, right? But when you look at the truth of the matter, which they don't actually address in the dialogue, Luke has allowed his sister, his protector, and this new person that he looks at as a friend and brother to go on a quest that he knows is intended to fail and that he caused. And it is very difficult to believe that any of this is genuine when you look at the fact that that's the truth. There's no reason for him to have allowed Percy to go out there with the intent of Percy should have died. Percy should have died on this quest at the hand of I think that Luke. he thinks that Percy was going to join Kronos yeah, he at the thinks bottom that, of Yeah, we thought that he was going to have a meeting with Kronos and then come back and be like, great, <laughs> I'm on your side now. <laughs> I, I think so, but I think also, like, you didn't give him that possibility of knowing that information. You didn't go with him. You didn't fight to go with him. You lied. So it's so difficult for it to feel something more than, okay, you caught me, and now that you know, maybe we could talk about this and you could come with me. And it's it's a oh, pivot. Marissa, it's you're not right. He was being this, sneaky. Like... No, you're right. <laughs> he lied. It was a pivot. <laughs> moment, <laughs> guy. I, I don't think it's true that he, that he wasn't planning this, though. Like, there's something about Charlie's performance in this role where you can see where, where like he was playing it so cool chill removed for all of the rest of the series and for these two moments you get the emo you get like all of this like mm. effusive emotionality that we haven't seen for the rest of it which works on both the level that like as an actor you need to save your range for the moment that you're going to need it but also like yeah. i think it plays into an idea of luke as a character like being fake at camp and this being like a one the one moment where he's real he's dropped in he's feeling emotions about the possibility that he can recruit percy or more likely the impending improbability that he will be able to recruit percy at this point and i i think that the way it's played really like it's not just getting you to like luke i think it it makes it very believable that that he's being genuine and that this is one of the few times that he is actually being genuine The only thing, though, is that, like, you have this scene, which you mentioned earlier, like, you have this dream that Percy has with Kronos, and you know now that the person that Mm. he was talking to is Luke. Yeah. And you know that the person he's threatening with Percy taking over is Luke. And so they're being pitted against each other in that way. And especially because we don't know that Annabeth is there until, until later, he's getting ready to leave without taking Annabeth with him. He's not giving Annabeth that chance to come. He's, like, taking someone who is posing a threat to him and posing a threat to Kronos to Kronos, to Kronos' side. So while it's a genuine moment that he's able to 
to perform really well. If Percy says yes, I don't know that that moment is because Percy's going to come over to the other side and be a good champion. Is this a person that they're trying to take off the No, this board? is a really good point because, like, why would he leave without Annabeth? Like, if his intention was to take Percy out here so that they could escape together, I think that he knows that Annabeth would never come with him. That it hasn't yeah. even crossed his mm-hmm. mind to try to convince Annabeth to come to his side because she is so firmly rooted in the gods are right and I will make my mom proud. At least the last time that he spoke to her, she was because he doesn't know that she's starting to have these other opinions. Mm -hmm. But I also like, I do think like it is true. He did something wrong, but I don't think it's that he's, I don't think it's that he's disingenuous. I think it's that he didn't think through the consequences of his actions. Like, I don't think that he wanted them to get hurt, but I do think he did not have the foresight and the maturity and the like good moral standing to be like, oh, I am putting them in danger. My goal is for them to fail. And that could put them in mortal danger and it could also like ruin their reputation and like they won't get the glory, they won't get the Kleos. Like, I don't think he thinks about any of that. He is so manipulative. It's Kronos' fault. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that the emo thing is really great that like all of a sudden we see him like really leaning forward and he's like, he's he's no longer like cool, chill, whatever. He's activated. Yeah, He's on the front foot. foot. I'm here to recruit. (laughs) The fireworks change color here. He whips out Backbiter who we didn't really see earlier because they were practicing with wooden swords earlier, right? I don't believe that was Backbiter previously, yeah. Yeah, as Marissa pointed out earlier, it's it's thick. It's scary, it's ominous, it's heavy. He's talking about, like, gathering, you know, we're going to need more people for what we're about to do, really leaning into the Princess Andromeda monster recruitment. We can stay on the run for as long as it takes, and Percy says, stop saying we. Here, once again, the laptop was on fire. <laughs> it's the word Zeus fears the most. The gods want us to fight for them, worship them, fear them, and they couldn't care less what we want. They're bad parents, Percy. It has ideological valences. It mirrors onto Percy's experiences, but you can also see a little bit that, like, Luke is still, like, even though he, like, intellectually is like, yes, this is something that Percy will be able to understand. In his framings, he still struggles a little bit sometimes to go beyond his personal deeply felt emotional grievances, which I think is such a rich detail for the character and important. And like ultimately Luke's fundamental limitation that like even when he's right about the shared nature of some of these harms, it's difficult for him to be truly empathetic and step out of the personal grievances. Yeah, he just wants his family. He wants a Mm -hmm. family to love him and he wants the family to work right and what he thinks is going to work right. And he can't stop himself from saying they're bad parents, Percy. Which truly, I think, undercuts. Exactly. Especially because, like, Percy just had this moment with Poseidon, where Poseidon does step in. So when you go to the childish, their bad parents, then you kind of, you lose any sort of... Yeah, it was a bad tactical choice on his part to put that there, because he doesn't know that Percy just had this, like, really, like, special moment with his dad. Yeah. Who is still, to be fair, being a bad parent, but... But the bar is on the floor. They're just trying their best. Literally, he just got, like, from Percy's perspective, he just got to talk to his dad for the first time. He is not about Mm -hmm. to give all of that up. This way, like, the timing doesn't work out. Like, Charlie says this in our conversation. Like, if Percy had more time at camp with Luke, there is a possibility that Percy would have joined Luke. Oh, yeah. But the timing just doesn't line up. He leaves camp too soon. He interacts Mm -hmm. with his dad right before he's given this opportunity to join him, to join Luke. And so he doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. He, and he and he oh my gosh okay talk about the chibi eyes this isn't you through his gritted teeth like walker is yelling he's like wake up like it's giving like like snap out of it like you're my brother like what is this weird emotional like front-footed part of you i don't like it like go back to being my cool chill youth pastor yeah it's a little bit trite but i think it works because percy is wrong <laughs> like it is Luke, you yeah. know <laughs> yeah our parents aren't perfect but they're trying their best 
Percy says, I met your dad. And that was the talk about Ooh, bad tactical choices. God, they are really missing each other um, here yeah. really badly. <laughs> Worst thing that Percy could have said in that moment, sword fight. <laughs> this is, to me, this was the sword fight. This was so, <laughs> this was everything. The choreography oh, yeah. was sickening. Lighting choices. Yeah. Everything. It gave down. me the sensation that Walker was not allowed to talk about this during the press tour, but if he was allowed to talk about this, he would have yeah. said episode eight, period, and not the thing that yeah. I'm most excited Very for that. people to see is not just the Ares fight, it's the entirety of episode eight and every fight that takes place. Because, of course, yeah. for those of you who don't remember, this fight does not exist in the books. It was a scorpion. Yeah. Percy doesn't do anything. Yeah. This whole fight is invented and it looks great. Talk about character conveying through movement. It tells you so much about the different like objectives that the characters have, the emotions that are flaring up, the way that those objectives are also like changing dynamically as they're like, oh, I think that this person is more dangerous, less dangerous, more likely to come with me, less likely to come with me. They did such a good job with like the fight choreography as well. Like like you're saying, storytelling through movement to reference like the Avengers, the first Avengers movie. They spent so much time choreographing each character's fight and what those things mean to that character the way they fight and what that means to them character wise so like there's that moment where um uh scarlett johansson black widow twists her ankle and keeps fighting and so you see like the weakness of humanity plus her like character willing to continue on and they do such a good job of doing the same here of like those moments every piece that you get of also watching percy's ability to fight um and also, the, the I think they do a good job of mirroring in moments that you recognize that Luke was the one who trained yeah, him. For you sure. see similar fighting Absolutely. styles. Absolutely. Everything about the sequence is so beautiful. Again, we see like Walker like flying through the air, like really getting pushed yes, around. Yes, good mirrors to the training scene that we just got this episode. Exactly. Yeah, but at the same time, Luke saying, hey, you've gotten better. That's important for us to know as viewers that like, oh, maybe Percy is going to stand a chance fighting against Luke again in the future. That even though we had this dynamic mm -hmm. clearly set up where Luke knows a lot more and is a lot better at sword fighting than Percy, that Percy is going mm -hmm. to become a formidable force who can possibly take down Luke. Like that's important for us to yep. know going forward. Um, and eventually mm -hmm. where we get to this point where um, Walker slices Charlie and then looks at him with the TV eyes and says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. My heart is breaking in a thousand pieces. And then you see like, <laughs> okay, this is exactly like, this is like the Zeus moment from earlier. Like, oh, you're proving his point. Like you're unhinged. Um, unfortunately, mm -hmm. like you took one stab at the guy because Percy is a little, you know, He's a little impertinent. He accidentally sliced Charlie. I think it's probably also true that, like, if Percy and Luke both have the objective of trying to not hurt the other person, like, Luke is going to succeed and Percy exactly. might not. Because he's yeah. worse. It's like an accident that they're, like, yeah. they're, they're, they're trying to disarm without hurting each other. But Luke gets sliced. Yeah. And that, you know, in his training, he's going to immediately go in, right? In his demigod sensibility. But mm -hmm. also, like, maybe Luke is a little unhinged and doesn't think through the consequences of his actions. And then literally looks like he is about to skewer Percy. Yeah. Yeah. This was wild. <laughs> but there is that, like hesitation there yes yes there's a hesitation yeah. but he's he's like wound up to it it's oh, really yeah. fascinating the tension in the arm as he's like thinking about it it calls back to the the scorpion scene they said oh mm -hmm. you think yeah. that we're going to change it so that luke isn't willing to murder percy but then i think that this moment offers up no hmm. he is willing to murder percy yeah he might yes. not be 100 percent about it but he will go through with it exactly he's a little unhinged well, also, Percy recognized, like, especially with this and the fact that, like, it, he does say no to coming with him, Percy represents everything that Luke 
mm-hmm. can't have. Like he can't have a dad that is willing to sacrifice for him. But also, more importantly, I think like he doesn't have the strength to let his parents not for define sure. him. Luke ha- Luke is a weak character. Luke has decided to allow, and that's why I hate him. <laughs> Mary, but Luke Mary has decided. Said, no, literally, you said, and that's why I hate him. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's allowed like his circumstance to def- to determine who he will be versus Percy has decided to make his own choices. He is as as I think Alexis said earlier, Percy uh, Sally Jackson's son. Not he also does have a son. better circumstance there. Mm. <laughs> he does well, but we don't we don't know for sure that that Luke didn't have a chance to be a you good person. I don't know. I I because you don't in the in the show we don't have that yet and so i think like if yeah. you're looking at it separately you don't necessarily have the explanation no i think that's super fair and talk about strength of character this is where he gets really weak when annabeth comes in hurdles her dagger which i might add is the freaking yeah. cursed blade what a great foreshadowing moment for her to hurdle yeah. that dagger at him that is ultimately going to reap a hero's soul my yeah. This was gaggery. Literally agape. Fly is just entering. Like, talk about, like, using movement and fight choreo to establish character. Like, seeing Annabeth hurl her knife. This is yes. not the first time she's done yeah. it. Like, this is clearly her signature move. Yes. And go for the next one, because she's got, like... I think a second one there that she's like ready yes. to. She has like, the sword ready also. Fight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's stunning. And again, we don't know exactly when she decided she was going to start following them. And she only steps in when she thinks that Percy's about to actually die, which is yeah, <laughs> great characterization. So yeah, so Annabeth, the the way that Charlie delivers that like Annabeth, like oh, it 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 works so well for me as far as establishing that she is his weak point. That like. Again, like not thinking through the consequences, being like, you're going to leave Annabeth here because you know she wouldn't go with you. Yeah. But maybe the fact that she wouldn't go with you should say something about your plan in the first place. Like if you really trust and respect her, which he doesn't, like we talked about in episode two, Mm. he trusts her, but he thinks about her like a little sister and ultimately is a bit patronizing. Like even though he's like, she's one step ahead of everybody. She's super smart. Like he's never going to look at her as his equal because of their age difference and the way that he is used to taking care of her. Mm -hmm. So then to be stopped by her in this moment totally shatters him. And, you know, what are his options in this moment? Stab, like, fight both of them or leave? Because he's not going to fight Annabeth. Yeah. He won't do it. It's like a reality check thing. When we talk about him not understanding the consequences of his actions, I think a lot of it, like, in this moment, what we're getting is that there are some... It's not even certain events. It's certain, like, people's opinions. Like, Annabeth's opinion is something that really matters to him. And it's, I think that he, like, is still fine, probably, abstractly with Percy dying. But he's not okay with, like, having to actually emotionally process what it will mean for Annabeth to know that he did that. Yes. To be disappointed. To, like, fundamentally break and fracture that relationship by betraying Annabeth. He was always going to run away before Annabeth found out that he betrayed her. Mm-hmm. It's also the worst because he's staring the family that he wants so badly in the yes. face yeah. and yes. willing to walk away from them for power, which makes me feel like it's not about family. It is about that <laughs> power choice. Those two choice. things are convoluted in his head. He doesn't understand the difference because his picture of family is all about power dynamics. Yeah. But well, I, I think like the idea, though, is like you have someone who cares for you that you call your little sister and you were going to leave to to move after like he does probably believe that power is what allows you to be bad or good. And so going to the more powerful option is a better option. But I think that's more about, like, if it were about family, he would have spent more time trying to convince mm-hmm. Annabeth or try to convince 
um, Percy or anybody else that he cares about. He would have dug up the Thalia tree and and <laughs> threw it over his shoulder. Like it's you're leaving everything you you view as family. You're leaving Grover. He thinks behind. Percy's gonna come. Yeah, I think he does think yeah. Percy's gonna come because he's a little bit delusional. But I think that there's also probably <laughs> like a level of like genuine like emotionally unintelligent structuralism that's happening where like especially if you follow Luke's arc throughout the rest of this I think he does genuinely believe that there is something wrong systematically that he thinks that he can change and that like he hasn't fully been able to process the like marrying the emotional truth of his personal abandonment with this structural story but like obviously they're related you know like I I think it's like these nuances about like okay like is his response to this to try to seek family for himself and emotional healing for himself or is it going to be to try to make sure that this never happens to another person but also never happens to another person in the sense that like presenting my specific bad outcome from happening to literally anyone else I also think he's thinking about this like he's gonna do it quickly like he thinks oh yeah I'll just get on the boat I'll get my army we'll fight the war and then we'll all live together happily like Thanos like we'll, we'll We'll be together in the garden and we'll know peace. Like, I'll have Annabeth and Percy yeah. there at the end and then our family will be together again. He's really not thinking mm-hmm. through every individual step of the plan <laughs> yeah. in the way that we are as, like, people on the outside of it. I also want to say, like, the fact that he chooses to run. I've heard some people be like, he's a coward. Like, why does he choose to run? It makes his character seem so weak and cowardly. But it's not that he's running from the fight. He's running from, like we said... The emotional guilt he feels. Emotional responsibility. The emotional responsibility of betraying (laughs) Annabeth because he literally says none of this was meant to betray you. Bro, bro, in what world is this not a betrayal of all of these people? Yeah. We had a patron ask a question. Since Annabeth's complex feelings for Luke had been one of the major subplots of the book series, uh, Siren Scene, Carrying the Sky, how do you think the scene will translate into her feelings in future seasons? Do you think it'll be Percy instead... Um, will they write vulnerability between all three characters or will Annabeth still be more vulnerable in a familial sisterly way? I think this question is asking about like the romantic dynamic between Annabeth and Luke. And I don't think that eliminating the possibility of that actually changes the story at all. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that that changes the story at all. And I also don't think that her being physically present for this betrayal is going to, it obviously changes things. I want, I don't, it's difficult for me to imagine that the emotional arc that Annabeth goes on is going to be that different, where she is still going to struggle to let go of Luke. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, yeah, I don't think that's going to yeah. go away. I think the only thing it changes is that it saves time so that Percy doesn't have to explain everything Luke said, you know? Yeah. Like, she still finds yeah. out about this. I think it means that Annabeth is going to be a bigger party to all these decisions. Exactly. Probably. Like, that is what I'm looking forward to, is her being a more important decision maker about you know, like, not just, like, what is the secret weakness of this monster, but, like, what do we do about this set of options about how demigods should be treated? Talking about the ideological spectrum, I think it's important for Percy to be caught in the middle of Luke and Annabeth here as much as Luke is mm. caught in the middle of Annabeth and Percy in this moment. That, like, like Percy is here, mm-hmm. in, it's still Percy Jackson and the Olympians as much as it feels like Percybeth and the Olympians, or, or Luke and Percy and the Olympians, <laughs> um, or Luke versus <laughs> Zeus, the TV show. But... For Percy to be in the scene with the two paths he sees of how he's supposed to feel about the gods kind of standing there in front of him. Obviously, he's going to choose a third path. Um, He's going to be a moderate right in the middle. But I think it's important. (laughs) (laughs) Oof. (laughs) All right. With that, commercial break, flash forward. It's the end of summer. Percy's packing up to go. We have a bit of a debrief with Chiron 
To me, I think this is meant to like wink and a nod to people who are used to a traditional, say, middle grade speculative fiction novel that is supposed to end with a nice conversation with a wise old man. <laughs> um, except it's very funny because Chiron, the high key, does not have any wisdom that he imparts that she tries to impart um if anything he's just being kind of a cop (laughs) i think the line about him being like hey you're a leader now is actually important yeah yeah it is important it but like i think it's i think it is nice to conjure us here that kyron doesn't isn't like here to like exposition dump or to like explain everything we've been confused about Mm -hmm. for the duration of the series because that would be bad that would be clumsy and we're not about that so instead kyron is like you're a leader now and also you know did you think a little bit about joining Luke? You, you nasty little <laughs> trickster. You, um, I, I didn't, I didn't care for that. I didn't like that. Yeah. What side are you on for real? I, I, I feel like you might have liked Luke a little bit. Did you? Now that I'm like recording this, or you know, like th- that's the energy. That we're <laughs> it was giving a little bit. I'm going to report back to the Olympians what you said. Vibes. Yeah. I'm the dean, but I'm reporting back to the president. I know. I'm a responsible employee. You know, something yeah. like that. Um, <laughs> I have a delightful little tag where Diana just shows back up. Does a bit about being really sure his name is Peter Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> Love Peter Johnson. They look like husbands. They are giving husbands. They have oh, never absolutely. given husbands more than this moment. Kyron with his little hands on his shirt jacket. He's like, oh, brother, not my husband again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't feel like they it's gave so husbands good. in the book. No. But in this TV show, strongly. Very much so. Yeah. The jorts aren't helping with the husbands thing either, you know? <laughs> we have our split scene at Talia's tree. This is almost too cute, like, with the way the lighting is soft and warm. Um, I love the fact that it happens at Talia's tree, not only because this is the boundary. Like, this could have happened somewhere else in camp, but it happens here because they're on the boundary. You know, they're on the precipice of going back into the real world together. It's this, like, limbo space. But also, Coming of age. being right next to Talia is an important reminder about where we'll be at this time next year. You know, when they say we're going to meet yeah. back here next year, all of us yeah. are going to meet yeah. right here. It is true, all of you are going to be right there because mm-hmm. Talia's going to be there too. <laughs> if I can ask anything of the universe, we're going to have a Latinx actress play Talia and it's going to make my entire life because in my head, her mom is a telenovela star and she's been like Latinx <laughs> my entire life since I read that book. Because of Jason and Talia's mom as an actor, right? Yeah. Oh. And her name is Talia. In my head. That's been my entire, like, 18-year journey of this character. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Annabeth looks great. She is glowing. Oh, she yeah. is wearing bright colors for Absolutely the first time. She has, she has new lip braids. gloss on, she like a new cut shade of lip so gloss. Good. She's so cute. She's going to go to Disneyland. Disney World. She's going to the More big parts. ones. Somebody was like, oh, she definitely got her um, hair and makeup done by the Aphrodite cabin before she left. Oh, yeah. Which is Aww. so sweet because you're like, oh, did she do that so she looks nice when her dad comes to pick her up? Or is it like a Camp Haplo tradition where like the last day of camp, the Aphrodite campers are like free makeovers. Like everybody like we're going to do <laughs> yeah. you up before you leave for the school year. I think that'd also be fun. This little, little dialogue exchange. Somebody needs to tell Walker that this is a slow burn. <laughs> no matter, the writers were like it's you know there's no like romantic crushes going on here they're 12 and walker read the script and he was like he's in love with her and i was like what if i just delivered that through my subtext of every single scene and the way that i look at her yeah. and smile it's so precious it's like plausible ambiguity you know like if it were two boys then i think everyone would be like oh there is no subtext yes. or for two girls i think everyone would be like there is no subtext but there is subtext and that's also appropriate for there to be like mm-hmm. lightly ambiguous subtext because i think that's how 12 year old crushes work i would also be so curious for people who are watching this for the first time without any 
context of the books, if they're picking up on it or not, or if it's like the fact that we've spent so much time. I think it's more so that like TikTok culture is going to pick up on any like boy girl lead, no matter what happens. Like it's the vibe (laughs) that Carter was saying. Like, but yeah, that line where, where, where Percy says, just be a kid. Yeah. I lost my mind because again, Percybeth, like so good. Emotionally intelligent Percy is like a newer thing. You know, I think that he Mm -hmm. is very emotionally intelligent. (laughs) Percy, as we see him appear in like, Magnus Chase, or even at towards the end of Heroes of Olympus, as he is in the Chalice of the Gods, you know. But this is very, this is emotional intelligence, Percy, right here, where he is like being able to say something to Annabeth that like Annabeth doesn't really understand, you know. <laughs> she's like rambling, and she's like, "What is there something bad about mm-hmm. Disney World?" Like, <laughs> this is very special to me. Grover Searcher's license is a flower, adorable. He's going to explore the seas and two of monsters. How exciting! Um, <laughs> no matter what happens, we'll meet back here next year. The music swells in the most triumphant fantasy ending. It is classical. It is very mm-hmm. close to the Platonic ideal of <laughs> the last ten minutes of your work of children's speculative. Yes, fiction. it was almost too Disneyland for me. But, you know, the project of season one. Some of us order 75% sweet, you know, and and that's... Yeah, and that's just a personal thing. Again, (laughs) this season had to be very, very specific. And I think next season, we can have more pop music. We can have more unseriousness. Next season will be less serious. Swing for the walls. I want to see Charlie XCX and Arca (laughs) in the scoring room giving us (laughs) pots and pans, dun-dun-dun music as we're... Listen, when Levitating came on, I nearly lost my mind. So, I mean... You want whoever the intern is making Barack Obama's year-end playlists to be making the Percy Jackson score? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, give it to me, please. Thank you. (laughs) I was being specific. Charlie XCX has done soundtracking work now. Let's get her in the room. I would like to see what her collaboration with with Bear would would, would entail. <laughs> oh my god, Charlie XCX X Bear would be insane. That would be wonderful. Okay, reunite <laughs> with Sally at Montauk. It's a dream. It turns into a nightmare. Kronos looks like Spirit Halloween coming in with a lantern. You know who else was holding a lantern in this episode? <laughs> Luke. Do I think that that's a flimsy comparison? Maybe, but I'm still going to make it because guess what? Starting next season, they're going to start melding into the same person. So they're both holding lanterns. Mm-hmm. Percy is, is just annoyed. He's like, come on, Grandpa, like, let's not do this. And Kronos is like, ah, your survival is the key to my return. <laughs> um, just foreshadowing for next season. It's great. He wakes up from the nightmare, et cetera, et cetera. It's very cute that Sally has this little dream notebook where they're keeping track of his whatever. You know, it, it, it shows how involved she is in his life. But Percy's getting older. He's entering seventh grade. He's about to turn 13, or he did turn 13. He decides he's not going to tell his mom about this, which I think is very important. We know from the books that Percy, like, doesn't like to include Sally in everything because it, you know, who would want to tell their mom about all the dangerous death-defying stuff that they're doing? But also, I think that it goes to show that there's, like, as he gets older, he, there's going to be more of a rift between him and his mom, you know? And that relationship isn't going to be as yeah. easy. And that's so important in the coming of age of this to, like, be able to acknowledge, like, as we have been throughout the series, like, their relationship isn't rainbows all the time. Mm-hmm. It's going to get more complicated the older he gets and the more, like, outside of her world that he is. Yeah. 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 And that doesn't mean it's not loving. It just means that there are logistical things that they have to work through. Yeah to maintain a good relationship and they will and she just like she can't physically protect them anymore yeah for sure mm-hmm. and the closing voiceover to mimic the opening is great we get him all getting ready for uh the first day of seventh grade like it's a quest too cute <laughs> too cute adorable <laughs> and then of course there's the uh the returned package post credit scene Gabe getting turned to stone. We weren't sure if they would do it because um, he's not quite as violent in the TV show, but they did. (laughs) It's different. You know, Sally doesn't turn him to stone. Gabe um, tries to steal Percy's mail. Which is, of course, illegal. It is a federal offense. Yes. (laughs) 
There you have it. I think it, it felt very, oh, we're at Disney Plus. We're going to do a post-credit tag. This is where that goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everybody, we have been recording for two and a half hours, so it is time to wrap this shiz up. <laughs> do not worry. Carter and I will be doing plenty of post-mortem discussion on the season. Like, this is not the end. We're going to have a lot more to say and to reflect on. <laughs> um, but for now, we need one of you two to volunteer to answer a question for us. Um, we have been tracking through every episode of this season, something that John Steinberg, our showrunner, said, that they are trying to create a show for four different um, audiences. They're trying to make four shows at once, a show for kids, a show for adults, a show for people who have never read the books before, and a show for lifelong fans. Now that we've seen the season in its entirety, um, how do you feel this episode and really the season has succeeded at those things or not succeeded? I will come at this as someone who worked in TV for most of my career and went to film school. I think they are taking on an impossible task and achieved it very well. When you're adopting something this big and you're adopting something this familiar, you do have to come at it from all those different angles. So we've talked about so many of the things that they took away from the show. Like we don't see Gabe being violent. We don't see Luke's mom. There are things that had to be cut for time. But if you watch the show just as a show by itself, I think the most important thing you have to do with a television show adaptation is to be able to watch it as a full moment of full series without having to have ever googled something so there's never a moment that like if you had not read the books or read anything about percy jackson that you have to stop and try to figure out what you just missed on the flip side there are all of these moments where if you did read the books you are enjoying yourself you're having so much fun you are getting the little sort of references to the books you're getting the little character references and excitement about what's coming next and you already know what's coming next but the hardest part about adapting something popular into a television show or a film is taking that audience that already knows everything that's going to happen and keeping them engaged and excited which they managed to do in a way that is really hard to successfully do which is they change things about the book and put it different into the series. So like one of the best examples of this ever is Breaking Dawn Part 2, the film adaptation, because you have an entire sequence that did not happen in the books that had the movie theater as a whole gasping, can't can't believe this is going on. And you have so much stress, which is what's getting removed from an adaptation. You're removing the tension of storytelling because I already know what's going to happen not only in this series, but in the next four uh, seasons of the show. So In that, those small moments that they chose, especially in this episode with the sword fight with Luke, with the changes to that betrayal, they give you enough difference that you feel like it was worth watching and that you still have the tension of a television show. But they also don't change so much that you're like, I can't believe they would do this to me. I can't believe they would take this out of out of Percy. So to me, I think it's an impossible task that they genuinely did accomplish quite well absolutely it's also funny that we've been asking this question of everybody and not we haven't had a single person on the show who could speak as somebody who isn't a fan of the books so maybe <laughs> we need so to true. find someone in our lives carter who I do, is watching this for the I first time i do have someone who's watching it for the first time well should we bring them on we, we can talk about we should later. we should bring them on we should bring sam <laughs> on all right um the last thing we have to take care of oh i'm kind of sad it's our last nori awards ceremony we have been giving out awards every single episode nori noms for little little salty ooh, little mm, treats in each episode that you're like wow how crisp so good <laughs> carter do you want to go first i'm gonna trust that someone else is gonna say something about about charlie and i am going to focus on olympus on zeus I think the best 
for me, single line, like delivery of a single word on the show so far was boy. (laughs) (laughs) Best individual word of dialogue. (laughs) Okay, I was going to do, not that I'm an Ernest Hemingway stan, but I was going to do like the Ernest Hemingway award for iceberg subtext of concise dialogue (laughs) because the way that we got boy, the way that we got you failed. The way that we got the total silence in response to Do You Ever Dream About Mom? All of that in this episode was just so good. Yeah. Dramatic, the old man incredible was, subtext. was in the sea a bit with, with this one. The old man. Um, ah. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So mine is the just the best eyes in the whole episode because there are so many just good little like hard eye moments or just crying chibi face moments. But Luke, when he gets to the betrayal and just looks so heartbroken and his eyes are just like teary, absolute best moment, like absolute best moment. Oh, that he just wants to be loved. The other day, everybody's eyebrows were popping off. Today, everybody's eyeballs were were moist. Yeah. 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 Boba eyes. Boba eyes. (laughs) Mine is the, the, I don't know what I would call it, but the delivery of Walker's Percy line when he says, you might find out exactly who I am and that that wave is coming. Child acting is so hard, but also Mm. like being a character that people have such an attachment Mm. to for so long is so hard. And when he delivered that line, I was like punching the air in my living room. Like, you're right. You are Percy Jackson. Uh, You expletive. You just killed it. You beeped and killed it, Walker. I want everybody to vote on the best Boba eyes of the episode. Like, is that cheating? (laughs) You know? I think that's fair. Okay. Between Luke, between... Walker, Percy, between like Poseidon staring at his son, you know, all of that. Zeus? They're not traditional boba eyes, but the eyes were humongous. It's true. They were open. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We'll make sure to have all the options in the Spotify poll. If you're listening on Spotify, make sure you vote. Uh, Most of the Nodi Awards should still be open until like the end of the week. So if you want to go back and retroactively vote before we review all of those results, please do that. Where can people find um, you on the internet, Alexis? Uh, Latinx geeks on everything. You know, Twitter is uh, dying, and I am trying to keep up with whatever else. So, trying to try out Instagram more. But you know, Latinx geeks is kind of in the in a rebranding to something else. So, hopefully, that happens in a couple months. Yay! So, yeah, amazing. And Marissa, what about you? Uh, you can find me on any social platform at Marissa Kumari which is my middle name. Uh, Fun fact. I don't know why. (laughs) And uh, uh, you can find You Are What You Love anywhere that you get podcasts. And you can listen to Erica and Carter talk to me about how important Percy Jackson is a couple months ago. That was the most fun guest episode we've ever done. That was a very fun time. Yeah, I've never had more fun fun. being a guest on somebody else's podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so flat. I appreciate it. Yeah, you asked really good questions. We just got to talk about ourselves. It was amazing. It's my favorite type of behavior. Thank you everyone so much for like literally for the people here today for recording with us for so long and for all of our guests throughout this entire season who have recorded with us for so long. For so long. For our listeners who have listened to so much content, like multiple episodes a week, like just being with us on this journey, patrons, people who've been to watch parties, like I'm exhausted and I'm excited to go back to my normal (laughs) life, but also like I'm going to miss this so much. And Mm -hmm. Until season two, like, this has been so special. I feel like we've closed a show. 
you know? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, thank you all so much. Stay tuned for more. Bye, guys. Thanks for Bye having all. me. Bye.